Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show British military veteran, mountaineer, and the founder of the Ulysses Trust, Philip Neem. Now, when I was a little boy, my first introduction to war was the Falklands Island conflict, and Philip led two para D Company in that war. So as you will hear, we discuss a host of topics, from his early life and introduction into climbing, his journey into the military, Northern Ireland, mental health, mountaineering, the unsung heroes of the Sherpa community, the formation of his own nonprofit, his book, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Philip Neem. Enjoy. Well, Philip, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. As we discussed a few weeks ago when we had our chat, I am writing a book. It led me to revisit the Falklands um, conflict. I found a documentary and then John was on there, you were on there, and now um, we are sitting down to chat. So I want to firstly just thank you for saying yes and coming on the show today. Okay, you're welcome. And uh, thank you for inviting me along. <laughs> <laughs> so very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, well, I live in a little uh, old market town in Wiltshire, uh, England, um, called Malmesbury. Uh, I've lived here for about uh, 23 years now. Uh, but uh, before that, I was, well, I was brought up in the county of Kent. Uh, and I was born in, in uh, Guernsey, in the Channel Islands. Um, where my uh, dad was uh, the uh, the lieutenant governor. So I don't think we talked about this when we spoke before. I grew up in Corsham, right down the road from you. Not very far away. Yeah. No. So Wiltshire is my home, my home uh, county. Um, and then, right. funny enough, with Guernsey, I had a Guernsey firefighter on the show um, probably two years ago now, Pete. Um, during COVID, I don't know if it was reported in the UK, but they had amazing success because they had a very proactive, progressive um, health, I wasn't minister, but whatever their their expert was on the island, and they had already prepared for a pandemic. So they locked everything down. They had one kind of flare up where they had to lock down again, but I think they were only, um, you know, sheltering in place for, I think he said it was, you know, a handful of weeks, and then the rest of the year, Guernsey was wide open. Yeah. No, I think they dealt with the uh, situation uh, pretty well. Yeah. All right. Well, then you mentioned about being born in Guernsey. So let's start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings? 
Okay. My uh, my uh, f- my dad was uh, in the army. Uh, he fought in the uh, First World War uh, and uh, quite a successful time. He won the uh, Victoria Cross. Uh, and then again, he uh, was a general in the uh, Second World War. Um, was uh, spent some. It was captured in North Africa by Rommel. Uh, spent a lot of the war in a prison camp. And eventually escaped uh, and got back home. I think in uh, late, uh, early 1944 or so. Uh, and really, the war had passed him by. So he was sort of parked really for a year or so. And then was appointed uh, Lieutenant Governor of uh, of Guernsey uh, immediately after, uh, uh, really immediately the war ended. So he was actually given the leadership position after actually truly leading in <laughs> in two conflicts. So. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know that the uh, recovery of uh, uh, of the uh, islands, you know, after years of occupation uh, by Germany, uh, you know, presented um, quite a challenge. So. Uh, you know, I think it was it was a job he relished. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I was a, uh, well, I was a twin. I was born just uh, in, in 1946 out in Guernsey, um, uh, along with my twin. Uh, and um, uh, I suppose we were, in a sense, sort of uh, post-war uh, afterthought um, because I had an elder sister and an elder brother. Um, who were both pre-war children. So that was the sort of family setup, if you like. It's very, very rare that I get to speak to someone whose father served in World War One. A lot of them, you know, World War Two, maybe, or grandparents. But what were the things, if anything, that he told you about that conflict? And then, you know, obviously he has World War Two experience as well. I mean, now being, you know, the other side of your own personal service in the military, what were some of the the things that stuck with you about his service way way back then? Um, I, he didn't really uh, talk a great deal uh, about uh, his experiences in the, in the war. Uh, I mean, he was quite a, a sort of modest, self-effacing man in in many ways, um, uh, and I, I think just you know didn't uh, relish talking too much about his his exploits. Um, but I do remember. Uh, well, sort of one thing that I do remember was uh, when the BBC was broadcasting a long series about the First World War um, in I don't know, sort of kind of in the sixties uh, uh, or seventies, uh, some way back now, um, and uh, he was he was quite dismissive of it because it was all, in his view, I think, uh, doom and gloom and horror. Uh, and you know, I remember him saying at one stage, but you know, they're missing, uh, they're missing a dimension, they're missing the excitement, the comradeship, uh, and you know, even to some extent, the glory uh, of uh, the events. Um, so that sort of registered with me. But then I remember him watching the episode on the uh, first day of the Somme and uh, was clearly upset by it. And uh, you know, um, at the end, got up, you know, went away to his study, uh, sort of muttering, you know, I wish I hadn't seen that. So uh, it clearly had, you know, the, the horror had left its mark as well. This is what I hear a lot. I mean, obviously more so from the World War II generation, but I mean, World War One 
sadly is underreported, but the book I'm writing is is talking about multi generational trauma, and sadly. There's this kind of hero worship of the World War II generation and the stoicism, but then when you unpack it and you speak to family after family after family, granddad or grandma was struggling, but they were they were suffering in silence. And you look historically, we've had a term for you know PTS for a long, long time, thousand yard stare, you know, shell shock, soldier's heart. So it's always been there, and I think now we're finally realizing how much. Um, suffering those veterans must have had when they came from, you know, Flanders fields back into British culture again, and were just kind of expected, and again, well, not maliciously, but they just were culturally expected to just roll their their sleeves up and get back at it. And I think they expected to have to do that as well. That's, you know, I think, you know, what's changed is that, um, uh, you know, um, we're all much more prepared to talk about these things now and to uh, uh, unpack what what's going on uh, and that you know uh, it just didn't happen no well we're notorious for our stiff upper lip and that you know stoic um, element what have you seen not not to delve into mental health too soon but just culturally we are you know known for that quality but if you talk about vulnerability and, and the ability to have these important conversations as you said the nuance that is combat or first responder service have you seen our culture kind of be a resistance to that movement that we need to make where we are a little bit more open about our emotions um i think by and large i think people have woken up to the fact that it, it's probably uh important to you know, talk about these things. Um, uh, I mean, I think my, my own view really is that there is a risk that um, uh, we can we can go too much the other way, uh, and that it's it, a large degree. It, it, people probably need sympathy, but they need really, I think, encouragement to um, find their own solutions and their own support network. It's just that actually, you know, those around them need to understand what is going on and to cut people the slack they need and the space. Yeah, yeah. I always talk about um, reasons, not excuses. Excuses would be, you know, that, that kind of victim mentality, that expecting sympathy, which isn't really helping anyone. But uh, yeah. reasons are acknowledging like, okay, this happened when you were young. This happened in, on Goose Green, for example. So there are some tangible things that we need to address for you to be able to move forward. Yeah, yeah. And I think in, in, in 82 when we got back, you know, we didn't cut people with slack that I think they would be cut these days uh, and there would be uh, an infrastructure to sort of, you know, help. Uh, and certainly I think of, you know, uh, two cases in my company where I, you know, I look back and think we didn't didn't do them right. We didn't, you know, I mean, we didn't go out of the way to do them wrong, obviously. But, you know, we could have done more to help them. Yeah. So back to your, your early life, you grew up in this pretty, pretty prominent, you know, military family by this point. You know, your dad's been a leader in two com conflicts. Now he's overseeing an entire island in the, the British Isles. Um, what were you dreaming of becoming when you were in, in the schoolboy age? Um, well, 
probably after I'd left Guernsey. Uh, I mean, I left Guernsey when I was seven. Um, and I think around about the age of 12 or 13, um, uh, I had a dream of being a barrister. Uh, and I actually went to, eventually left school and went to university to uh, study law. Um, it wasn't a great success. Uh, and uh, I left after two years without a degree. Um, but really, because by then, um, climbing had sort of taken over my life. And, you know, I had become an absolutely obsessive, passionate uh, about climbing to the extent that, you know, three days a week I was on the Swanage Sea Cliffs climbing rather than studying law. And, you know, it didn't have a very successful outcome in terms of a, of a, a legal career. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, my interest in climbing was also, uh, I think, um, if you like, fanned by my, my dad, who um, had, uh, had a very uh, active uh, sporting career. He'd uh, won a gold medal in the um, uh, Olympics for shooting uh, in 1924. Uh, he'd spent much of the uh, years between the wars uh, serving in India and had explored um, vast areas of the Himalaya um, hunting for big game. Uh, he'd uh, had a climbing trip to the Alps with the uh, fairly well-known uh, uh, pre-war mountaineer Frank Smythe. Uh, so, you know, he he encouraged my interest in, 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 in not overtly or, or, or sort of assiduously, but, you know, yeah, I, I, he, he approved of my climbing and, and did not sort of condemn me for spending too much time on the rocks as opposed to studying law. Well, I want to get to your journey into climbing, but just before we do a tangent, because this is a very difficult conversation. It was hard for me to understand when I first moved from the UK to America. My my kind of optics changed a little bit when I saw how just immersed we are at the moment with this gun ownership problem. And I say problem because it's not about removing all the guns, but we we have an issue where you know, everyone has a gun, you know, all the bad guys, some of the good guys, you know, so there are just guns everywhere. So robberies and, and arguments and road rage incidents so often end up with someone being fatally shot. And I saw it as a, as a paramedic here for years and years and years. But the narrative is, well, we'll never solve it. Well, I always point to the UK that during World War II, there were lots and lots of guns in our country because we were trying to protect it. And then we transitioned to where we are today. Is it you know, is it perfect? Are there times where we need a gun? Yes. I mean, you know, some of the terrorist attacks in London are a perfect example. But I'm always curious how that transition happened. With your dad being in two conflicts and with you being military, what are you aware of how the British specifically were able to go from, you know, a nation full of weapons to the environment that I grew up? And I had a gun. I grew up on a farm, but I wasn't carrying a pistol around my, my high school either. Yeah. Um, well, I, I do remember we always had uh, guns in the house uh, when I was young. Um, uh, you know, he had uh, uh, target rifles uh, stashed away. Uh, he had, you know, shotgun. Uh, again, he was a keen uh, shot in that sense as well. Um, so we just grew up with with guns around, but they were always, you know, 
um, lot to weigh in a, in a cabinet. I wouldn't say it was a particularly secure cabinet, but, you know, nowadays, I think, you know, with that weaponry, he would have to have it locked away in a, in a safe. But it was just a locked away in a cabinet, which uh, all on display. Um, but, you know, we were, I suppose we were brought up to... Um, well, it was, it was strange in many ways. He was quite cavalier about uh, letting us have rifles to, you know, shoot uh, vermin and things like that uh, in the fields around us. Um, uh, you know, without any kind of um, serious teaching us uh, of the sort of safety and the danger areas and everything else, we just we were expected to apply common sense, and, and we did. Um, so um actually you know how did we transition to um i think it was just accepted that you know once peace was restored you know guns would be controlled as they had been before and he certainly didn't he expected the he, you know to go through the processes of getting his guns licensed and keeping them uh, safe when they weren't in use and so on uh, and just saw that as a sort of very common sense approach to, you know, potentially dangerous weapons. Uh, and I think that was really the way, uh, you know, I was brought up and, and the way I looked at, at uh, weapons as well. I had a rather unique uh, experience with a friend of mine who's just retired out of the London Transport Police's arms unit. And I went yeah. to to their their weapons cache in, in, in the centre of London. And they had obviously all the weapons that the police use, which wasn't it was funny. It would have been so much more. I would have been so much more in awe had I not lived in America for a long time, where I can go to a sports store and see an array of weapons that a three-year-old can hold and play with. But um, but there were also all the ones that they'd confiscated or had been turned in, and there were Tommy guns and Gatling guns, and I mean they're still there. They're still out there, you know. And I think that's the thing. It's it's obviously the the accessibility is part of it but like you said it's also the mindset and the discipline and and i think i would argue still the mental health element of our problem here in america is the hugely under discussed part of the the violence that we have with these weapons yeah and i mean i think looking in at america i mean I, again i mean i, I find it uh, extraordinary you know kind of combat assault uh, rifles and so on being freely available is just absolutely strange uh uh really strange but i suppose you know i mean that kind of thing well it goes back to the founding fathers and the right to bear arms is 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 almost a religion in in uh in america and i think that's the difference here it's never assumed the status of of a religion or the you know proof that you're a free person because we had freedom anyway it's it's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny, but again, coming from from the UK, you know, the the freedom element, the democracy element, it is. It's like I'm sure it's the same if you come here from Sweden or Finland. It's like, well, yeah, we do as well, you know. And there are some very oppressed nations that would kill for this kind of freedom in the US. But you know, I think when the British have had enough with the people that are in charge, they just rise up anyway. So you know, there is definitely well, a lot of freedom. Yeah, the mob takes over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then I know climbing is, you know, is something near and dear since you were very young all the way to today. So when you were a young man, you know, what was that journey? What were you playing sports wise? And how did you find yourself into the climbing mountaineering side? 
Um, well, um, my I suppose I, I did all the sort of normal sports. Um, uh, you know, initially at school, you know, football, rugby, bit of cricket. Um, uh, then uh, you know, later on in my school career, um, I took up rowing, uh, and I was quite a small boy at the age of sort of thirteen, fourteen. So I was the uh, cox uh, and cox the uh, first days at my uh, secondary school for uh, uh, two, three years, I think, um, uh, and really got into that uh, as well. Uh, I think, uh, if I'm honest, perhaps I was never a really a kind of um, a team player in the sense of, you know, the rugby team or the football team or whatever. Um, and, you know, uh, so I coxed the first day. But, of course, I was the ninth person as the cox. Uh, and uh, so, um, you know, kind of always sort of a, a, a part of the eight, but not the eight. Uh, and I think that um, I think that suited me quite well, actually. Um, you know, I felt quite at ease uh, being the one Cox as opposed to one of eight oarsmen. Um, uh, I enjoyed the the um, freedom, if you like, and the responsibility that went with being a Cox. Um, you know, you could you know you could uh, win or lose a race just on the decisions. You took, and I enjoyed that degree of of um, uh, responsibility, pressure, and so on. Uh, in fact, I thrived on it. I think, um, and uh, you know, sort of uh, made a, a point of almost emphasizing my sort of individuality and so on. So I I, I sort of took off on that, um, and then um, I was really introduced. Well, so I'd heard about. Uh, you know, some climbers. I've been sort of. My dad had talked about the climbers. He knew he he'd uh, gone to Tibet between the wars with uh, Frederick uh, Freddie Spencer Chapman, who was a, another famous uh, pre-war mountaineer, uh, and eventually uh, wrote this book, uh, "The Jungle Is Neutral," serving uh, working behind the lines in Malaya. I'd met Spencer Chapman, uh, so I had you know some hero figures um, sort of waved across in front of me if you like and, and i think that was uh part of the inspiration as well but i got into it um really through uh, uh army cadets at school and we went off to a, a summer camp in sky when i was i think 16 um and was introduced to uh, rock climbing there and you know just really got off on it really uh, enjoyed it um and so i had two trips uh, with the cadet force um, over two years, first to Skye and then to Wales. So there was a little, I went to school in Cheltenham and there was a small outcrop uh, 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 called Cleave Hill just outside Cheltenham. And so I started to uh, uh, bicycle out to that at the weekends with a, a mate of mine at school. And we uh, set about, you know, kind of teaching ourselves how to do things as much as anything else. Um, I do remember. Uh, and this was the sort of relationship and the importance, I suppose, of my dad. I do remember um, uh, at one stage uh, my housemaster saying, I don't think you should be going out to these outcrops. It's limestone, it's loose and it's dangerous. Uh, he was a bit of a climber himself, this chap. And so he forbade us to go out without supervision. 
Um, and I wrote to my uh, dad sort of explaining that I thought this was a thoroughly pathetic decision. Uh, and would he please write to my housemaster and say that you permit me to uh, <laughs> go off on my own without supervision, which he did. And, um, you know, it didn't endear, my, endear me to my housemaster particularly, but uh, he, he backed down and, you know, we carried on doing our own unsupervised trips out to, to Cleve Hill and other places like Winter's Leap near Chepstow and so on. So I sort of kept going uh, until I left school and then, you know, went to university um, and joined the um, the um, mountaineering club at, at Southampton University, uh, which was, a, a, at that stage, was a very active and quite pushy uh, club, some very good climbers in it. Uh, and so I had, you know, these sort of hero town figures as I saw them as a, still a relative novice and, you know, immediately aspired to, you know, get better and start doing some of the hard routes myself. It just led into that. And uh, and I suppose my other kind of um, uh, uh, encouragement I got, I, I suppose, was I, I met a, a team of, uh, a group of people out in, in the Alps one year, um, I think my first season out in the Alps, uh, who were sort of, uh, all from Liverpool. I'd never been to Liverpool in my life, but these guys struck me as pretty cool. They said they were starting their own club. They got a hut in North Wales. And, uh, you know, would I like to join the club? So, um, you know, I, uh, I enthusiastically said, yes, I would. Uh, and, uh, and again, it was, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was quietly competitive. You know, we were all striving to improve. And, you know, you were just checking across to see what someone had done the weekend before. And, you know, okay, well, I can do better than that and so on. It was that sort of... Um, uh, uh, atmosphere but it was also actually um because i left university i then joined the army um uh, and uh, well i didn't i joined the rf regiment initially um but um this uh, this group of uh, liverpudlians were, were brilliant at just keeping your feet on the ground um and i mean I, i'll tell you a little story which was you know this mate of mine and myself had gone out to anglesey and did some pretty uh, good routes um, uh, on the Anglesey Sea Cliffs. Um, uh, I mean, definitely, you know, you drop the names and people, oh, we've done that. So uh, we got back late one evening. It had been a drizzly day, not the sort of day that you'd be doing seriously hard routes. But we did a couple of, you know, seriously hard, recently put up routes on Anglesey um, and, um, uh, and got back into the hut sort of fairly late at night. And, you know, so, well, what have you done today then, lads? You know, and, and uh, so we sort of very nonchalantly said, oh, it was a red wall and when to go, uh, which, you know, I knew would impress. And someone from the back of the hut piped up and said, yes, we had a bit of a poor day as well. <laughs> <laughs> so it was you know, a, a fantastic environment. Just make sure you never got kind of uh, too big for your boots and just, you know, seriously grounded. Great atmosphere. So when you look through a 2023 lens, were there any elements of the equipment, the um, safety procedures back then that you look at now and go, oh my God, we missed that? Or has that innovation from back then carried through to, to today and is still the same thing? Um, well, I think equipment has improved 
uh, amazingly. I mean, it's sort of, you know, uh, manufactured uh, sort of artificial chalk stones and so on, uh, uh, sort of referred to as chocks, uh, to help provide protection in, you know, slotting them into cracks. Uh, and you can just buy racks of these uh, off the shelf these days. Uh, when I started, you know, chocks were you went down to the scrapyard and you drilled out the threads from old discarded nuts. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was your chalk stone, uh, fairly basic. Um, so the protection is available, that's available, uh, has improved, um, you know, dramatically. Uh, the um, tools for climbing ice have dramatically improved. Um, so um, that's improved safety. It's also, you know, improved uh, technique and so on. So the standards have just rocketed ahead from, you know, what was a hard route in my day, um, you know, and so glibly referred to as extreme, uh, and, you know, most of them sort of E1s, E2s, you know, well, people are now putting up sort of uh, E8s and E9s and, you know, that the, so the standard has, has, uh, has rocketed ahead and I'm way, I'm, I'm nowhere near that, you know, uh, these days. Um, it's left me miles behind. But I mean, essentially, you know, the the principles have stayed the same. Uh, you know, whatever the quality of your know, safety equipment and so on, there's still a risk. And you know, the part of the uh, challenge or the pleasure of um, uh, climbing is is um, managing that risk, um, and you know overcoming the fear factor controlling that managing the risk and, and, and getting the route, route done that's the principles in that sense have stayed the same i think one of the the most misunderstood things and alex honnold, alex honnold is a perfect example the free solo um you know the, yeah. the subject of the the documentary free solo is when i talk to these high level climbers and base jumpers and you know there's oh well they're adrenaline junkies they take these massive risks when actually you listen to these men and women they are the most rehearsed conditioned calculated athletes out there but it yeah. seems like the you know when sadly we lose people usually it's complacency that you know finds its way in seeps in and that is the underlying issue from a lot of these and it's the same with the fire service you know we we we're brand new firefighters. We're wide-eyed. We're looking at everything. Now, you know, you're 15 years into your career. That's 15 years of sleep deprivation. You've seen this fire a thousand times, you know. So how did you personally manage that complacency? How did you keep yourself being diligent, even though, you know, as we talk now, you're an extremely experienced climber? Um, <clears throat> I think... <laughs> uh, Probably because I always had a healthy uh, dose of fear and caution uh, lurking around in the background. Uh, and um, so I kind of think that uh, that always uh, um, discouraged me from getting complacent. I mean, I had uh, mates who, you know, would happily plop off, you know, every other weekend and, you know, but, you know, just were confident enough in their gear and so on that, you know, they take a. 20 foot drop or something like that and you know just shrug and you know try again um i was never one of those um you know even though i thought i might get away with it i i, I was uh, i would go to the ends of the world as it were to avoid falling off that sounds like good advice to me <laughs>
Um, and I think, I mean, the only, it, it, it does depend on, on the circumstances. I mean, I think in the Himalaya, um, again, I mean, I, I kept my feet on the ground and was pretty cautious, but, you know, uh, in the Himalaya, um, you know, people talk of summit fever, um, you know, because you've, you know, dreamt of climbing this mountain for two or three years. You spent maybe um, four or five weeks on the mountain trying to climb it. And there you are, you know, kind of just one final push and the summit's ours. Uh, and you, you know, you push too hard. And that's, again, where a lot of, of um, uh, you know, a lot of times where things have gone wrong. Um, and I, I do remember my first uh, Himalayan peak, which actually was the first ascent. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I remember as we were descending, thinking, uh, push this just a bit too far. I was getting pretty worried. And I was uh, very grateful that I had a, a really uh, strong, reliable mate with me who, you know, if I'm honest, I think, you know, made sure I got down safely. Uh, so, you know, sometimes it depends on a little bit of luck and who you're with and so on. So I've had Nims die on the show. I know that he's rescued climbers, you know, during a lot of his climbs. There was another um, guest, and I'm blanking on the name, but they're a member of the military. Same thing. They actually went, walked someone all the way down and then went mm. all the way back up, met his team and carried on. But then yeah. I just saw, and again, I have no, you know, real education on the backstory, but I just saw very recently there was a female climber going for a record and was, you know, pictured stepping over someone who was injured to finish yeah. her climb. I have no yeah. idea of the context of, you know, right, wrong, indifferent. Um, but what is, you know, I don't know if you know that story specifically, but, you know, what is, as a climber, you know, when, what is that line between, you know, saving a life and, and continuing? Because I know it's not black and white. It's very, very, you know, specific to that particular moment. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, recently, well, over the last um, uh, 20 years especially, you know, I think uh, line has become uh, much more blurred because, uh, you know, especially around these sort of mass ascents of, of um, uh, queues of people trying to climb Everest. Um, you know, I think I, I understand the mentality in a sense that people who've, you know, been you know, career climbers, if you like, who've been at it for years and years and years, have dreamt for years of, say, climbing Everest or another big Himalayan peak or, or really whatever it is. And uh, they find themselves surrounded by these people who, you know, in my opinion, you know, are not climbers. They're just trophy seekers um, uh, and, you know, coming to grief or needing help. And, you know, uh, I think it's a very understandable mentality which says why should i give up my dream to help this person who should never have been here in the first place uh and i think that is the mentality i mean i think it's a very sad uh state of affairs that you know that we've got to that state um and i don't hold much sympathy uh for people who you know in my view take the wrong decision uh, and abandon someone um um you know for the sake of their own trophy if you like um but i do understand it uh and um you know i think uh both parties in a sense uh, have to take responsibility um yeah yeah i think for, for people to understand that concept 
Nims took a, a picture that went viral and it was this <laughs> like traffic jam going towards Everest. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that what you were referring to earlier was it was uh, Nims case where, you know, going for his own record for the um, the 8,000ers uh, and, um, you know, um, abandoning his first attempt, I forget which one it was on, um, to help carry some people down and then going back up to finish the job. I mean, that is the way it should be done, uh, I think. Um, and if it means that, you know, you don't get your record or you, you know, don't, you know, succeed in, in that particular endeavour, uh, then so be it. Um, I mean, my experience was, you know, uh, on Everest in uh, 76, where um, we were the only expedition on the mountain, but uh, our first summit pier got benighted on the way down um and uh um you know suffered serious frostbite and so on one of the guys might have got himself down under his own steam but he wouldn't have abandoned his mate and i think you know the, those of us following up to have a go at ourselves abandoned our attempts to uh, uh help them down the mountain uh and i mean you know, <laughs> i won't say that they didn't carry a large degree of, of regret but um uh, and i as i was helping these chats down was pretty clear in my mind that myself and my mate were going to go back up and there was sufficient oxygen up there that we could go up there and, and do the job. But, you know, eight hours later, helping one of these guys down the low face, yeah, I was I was knackered and uh, I, I just knew the dream had gone. Uh, obviously, one has regrets about that, you know, an opportunity missed, it's a job not done, um, a dream not totally fulfilled um but you know that's climbing uh, and you know it should continue in that vein rather than abandoning people just to you know claim a success that mirrors how i've talked about walking away from a fight you know someone who's actually trying to physically fight you is you know when you rise above it if you have the opportunity to which most of them you can you know it's very rare that you're cornered and being attacked by a mob but I tell my son this, I'm like, just know that seconds after you walk away from a fight, you're going to want to turn around and say, I changed my mind and go back in again. Because <laughs> yeah. sometimes the right decision is you suffer with it. You, you know, you are being the bigger man. And so, you know, like you said, whether you've given up your dream to do the right thing, whether you've done the right thing by walking away from a fight doesn't mean that you're not carrying that anger with you as you yeah. walk away. Yeah. But, I, you know, other than, you know, but, you know, if you take that, wrong decision i i'm just not quite sure how you can um you know met, meet your fellow humans and look them in the face and, and just not kind of have a bit of regret about it yeah yeah exactly well speaking of of the himalayas um one of the things that nims really kind of educated me on was the the unsung heroes it is that are the sherpas and that you know there's a lot of a lot of people that are the subject of that particular climb that failed to mention or maybe it's not made apparent enough that there was a team of phenomenal human beings that helped carry all their stuff to the top so if you have you know kind of lens on that talk to me about that element um yeah well i i mean i i i echo that i mean my my first um uh himalayan uh expedition as it was a, a first ascent in the annapurna range that we did um uh i think we were one of the earliest 
um, expeditions, if not the first expedition uh, to Nepal, and not to use high altitude Sherpas. Uh, so, you know, we did it ourselves. Uh, we did it, you know, clean and simple. Uh, and I mean, I look back and really that was, I think, you know, for me, uh, the best of the expeditions I've done. You know, partly it was the first ascent uh, that I made. Um, and there's nothing quite like treading ground which no one else has trod before. You don't know what to expect and so on. Um, but it was, you know, small and it was uh, unsupported, self-contained expedition. Um, uh, I mean, whether we could have ever, uh, or whether I would have ever been in a position to sort of contemplate um, uh, Everest without uh, Sherpa support, um, I don't know. But I do know that uh, certainly on the two expeditions I've been on, uh, on, uh, on to Everest, um, yeah, um, these guys are unsung heroes uh, and they take, you know, huge risks. Um, um, and you can say, well, you know, they're being well paid, yes, in relative terms uh, and so on. But, um, you know, uh, if they come to grief or they injure themselves and so on, what's uh, uh, left for them is, is pretty stark. Uh, and I think it's... Um, it does depress me to see people, you know, in their hundreds going off and saying, yes, you know, I've summited Everest. Um, well, you know, on whose back? Exactly. Question. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the thing. If it's a team, then that's great, but credit the team, you know. And the other, just one more area on this before we transition to your military journey. Another thing that I know he's passionate about is cleaning the mountain now you wouldn't think an average person like me that's never really ascended anything other than a, than a ski mountain on a chairlift um you know you're not thinking about environmental pollution there so so talk to me about that element too and educate us yeah well um certainly you know when i was on everest i mean yeah it's pretty appalling the south coal uh, the amount of rubbish up there and so on discarded oxygen bottles and you know it was a it was a rubbish tip um did it worry me um probably it should have done but if i'm absolutely honest i don't think it did i thought well you know this is the price um is it upsetting uh scores of people the only people it's upsetting are the few people who got up here um and you know there weren't many people getting to the south column beyond in 1976 um so um you know i took a sort of pragmatic view and said well yeah you know how do you get it all down you know it's um uh so i suppose you know these days i said look back and think, oh, well, that's probably uh rather irresponsible um but it was you know my view is, is a pragmatic uh you know how many people is it going to upset only the people who are contributing uh to the rubbish uh so you know that's the way of the world. Um, but, you know, in a larger sense, uh, clearly the increased traffic uh, on Everest now uh, has multiplied that by a hundredfold. Uh, and clearly it is now a different uh, different problem. And particularly if you think lower down, where its impact is felt by many other people. So, um, you know, times change and, and I think attitudes have to change as well. Absolutely. Well, you were in 
school for you know in, in law school to be a barrister i actually was going down the track to become a doctor until i realized that you have to be good at maths to to get through the classes so that was the end of my i ended up becoming a paramedic which was way more fun anyway but wasn't destined to be the traditional doctor route so now you're hanging off cliffs walk me through that transition out of uh, university and into the raf well, I was, um, uh, 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 as I say, I left university after two years and failed my second year exams um, and um, sort of uh, thought, okay, maybe, um, well, I, I was aware that I had to think what I was going to do for a living and, the, you know, probably, well, looking back, actually, um, there were choices, you know, I could have uh, gone to university, read something else other than law. I mean, I found it deadly. It was like learning case law, like a parrot was, you know, not exactly uh, stimulating. Um, and I enjoyed geography. And I actually, I was offered a place to read geography uh, at Cambridge, uh, thanks very much to our rowing coach uh, at school. Um, but I turned it down because, you know, I said, I'm sorry, I want to read law. And thought that was the way to go and become a barrister um, without really being aware of the alternatives. Um, so anyway, I left university. I thought, okay, you know, law is uh, no longer available. Uh, and I sort of buggered off up to Glencoe for several months uh, working in a hotel up there, thinking that, you know, I might, you know, get an awful lot of climbing done. Wasn't as easy as all that. Um, uh, but after a while, um, I thought, well, I think perhaps I'll give the uh, armed forces a, uh, a try I you know I knew a little bit about them from my dad and so on uh and my elder brother uh, well both my elder brother and my twin brother had uh, gone into the army and so on um but uh, I thought well I can't go just be another one joining the army like the rest of the family so I uh, instead applied for the uh RAF um thinking you know they might give me a to fly they offered me a commission in the RAF regiment, uh, and so that's how that journey started. Uh, no great plan. <laughs> it's just, you know, the way it sort of evolved. Um, and I spent uh, six years with the RAF regiment, um, and uh, three of those were with their parachute squadron. Uh, at the end of that uh, six years, you know, I decided I really liked what I was doing. Uh, reasonably good at it um so i applied for a permanent commission um and was uh, offered one on the strength of which i was then posted away from the parachute squadron to what was called a ground defense training job at Huxbridge, where they didn't even have airplanes uh sort of big administrative headquarters um and um, i just thought hang on you know i didn't sign on for this so I haven't actually signed as accepting my permanent commission. Bit of a long story, this. Uh, and um, at the same time, as I say, uh, you know, I was geared up for my first Himalayan expedition, um, uh, which the parachute squadron had okayed me to go on. But my new um, commanding officer at Knightsbridge um, said, well, I don't think I can release my RAF regiment officer uh, to go on this expedition. Um, Especially, and this was, you know, sort of uh, mid uh, uh, mid seventies, when sort of aircraft hijackings were occurring every other week. 
uh, especially, he said, in view of the security situation at Heathrow. And uh, I said, oh, I'm sorry. So I thought I was in Uxbridge, not Heathrow. <laughs> Got a rather <laughs> old-fashioned look back. And, you know, I thought, my future's not here. <laughs> so I declined my uh, permanent commission. Actually, first of all, in the end, the RAF uh, said, okay, if we can find someone to stand in for you, you know, maybe we can make you go on your expedition. So I said, well, thank you very much, but didn't make any commitments. Um, and uh, by then I'd already been in touch with the parachute regiment um, and had a warm reception from their regimental colonel. Um, so I got out as far as Hong Kong on the way to uh, Nepal for this first expedition. And I wrote a letter to the RAF saying, you know, I don't no longer want my permanent commission. And the next day I sent another letter off, um, you know, formally applying for a commission in the army. I wasn't allowed to transfer. I had to leave uh, and, and rejoin. Uh, so that all kind of went ahead. And I disappeared into uh, Nepal for two months in, in communicado to get back to uh, Hong Kong, find a thick pile of signals waiting for me, saying, you know, I was to report to the Air Secretary's Department um, in MOD by a certain date. And as per Defence Council instruction, blah de blah if there were no RAF flights available, I was to pay, pay my own fare home uh, and go civilian. And... Um, Fortunately, the the, the uh, medical officer at, at uh, RAF Kai Tat uh, had been on the same station as me in the parachute squadron. Uh, so I went to see him uh, and said, I've got a problem, Murray. Uh, he said, what you need, Phil, is a very heavy cold. <laughs> <laughs> so I was duly given a very heavy cold, or so the chit said. <laughs> and I delayed my return until there was an RAF flight available. Um uh, that was another long saga because then the flight went uh, uh, US in, in uh, GAN where there are no civilian flights anyway. So my appointment with the Air Secretary's branch in, in MOD had to be postponed yet again. Uh, and eventually when I got back, you know, uh, I was, I, 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 I felt I had a rotten smell hanging after me. <laughs> <laughs> I was not warmly received. But by then, as I say, my my application for the army and the, the party regiment had been accepted, so I, I just shrugged and moved on. Uh, and so that really got me, to, you know, um, into the parachute regiment. And um, uh, I mean, really, um, I don't know why I didn't do it earlier. Really, I mean, I think it was, you know, it. Uh, I think in those days, the, the, the sort of opportunities for the RF regiment in sort of grand, grander scheme of things were very, very limited. Um, and uh, so I'm, I have no regrets about, you know, I really love my time in the RF regiment, but I've absolutely no regrets about also deciding to, to leave them and, uh, and join the parachute regiment. And uh, I guess had I not taken that decision, uh, I would never have got down to the Falklands. So. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, was Northern Ireland before the Falklands on your career? Um, yes, I'd been I'd done a couple of tours in Northern Ireland with the RAF regiment. Um, uh, I think it was very right at the very first start of the troubles in, in August uh, 1969. I was one of the first uh, you know, 
military elements uh, sent out there, and that was to um, protect uh, RAF Aldergrove, which is also sent as a civilian uh, airport outside Belfast. Um, and I, I remember sort of turning up there um, and um, uh, being briefed by the station commander that um, the IRA had threatened to cross the border in force uh, and attack a military target. Uh, Aldergrove, um, RAF Aldergrove, was home to something like 80 Phantoms, which had just been ordered from America, but were having their uh, engines swapped out for British engines. Uh, so that was certainly a rather attractive military target. <laughs> 40, 20 or so Phantoms in, in large hangars, you know, would have been a, you know easy, easy, easy and very tempting target. Um, and um, I, I'd been sent out there without our machine guns. So I immediately said, well, I think, you know, if it's, you're saying going to cross the border in strength, what strength? 300. Uh, I think I need my machine guns. Yes, sir, I think you do, he said. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was the first uh, sort of uh, experience, really. Um, uh, and then, you know, again, uh, the second tour, we were sent out, you know, during the uh, parade season. Uh, to reinforce uh, other elements out there. Um, uh, so, you know, yeah, that, that was the start of my experience in Northern Ireland. Um, it, was, I, it was quite interesting. Um, I was, uh, I started taking a, an Irish girl out while I was on that first tour at Aldergrove. And um, I was um, sitting in a lay-by in a car with her one evening and so a couple of heavies pulled up behind us and started knocking on the windows, asking what we were doing and that sort of thing. And I was going to get out and uh, remonstrate with them and so on. And she very sensibly told me just to stay in the car and they'd go away. And as they drove off, um, she said, do you see what sort of country we live in, Philip? When you have Catholics going around behaving like that. And I said, how do you know they're Catholic? Well, I don't know how she knew they're Catholic. <laughs> but that <laughs> I opened it. I think, you know, I thought, blimey, you know, we have some, you know, we have some problems here. Uh, and I think that we were very slow in the UK to really understand the nature and the depth of those problems. Because that that memory always, I never forgot that. It was a real wake up. It's, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around the... Um, silos that we created in these two tiny rocks that we all grew up on and that we're all completely interrelated i mean you go back in our lineage we're all scottish irish irish welsh and english you know but when i spoke to john graham you know he was over there and, and the the concept for example of of our recent military going overseas to someone you know with different race different religion and obviously the ones that they're hunting are you know, extremists and, and, you know, more often than not, very violent, oppressive murderers as well. But in that particular conflict, you're still in, a, on, you know, the British and Irish territory. They're our people. So what was yeah. that like? I don't know if you had any perspective of, of literally, in theory, being at war with British and Irish, who I would, you know, consider we're all the same people. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question i mean you know i did uh, several other tours you know with the parachute regiment as well uh, and uh, 
a whole year out there with uh, one of the uh, uh, special duties units out there. Um, so, you know, I got to sort of know the environment at various levels quite well. And um, I mean, I think <laughs> I, I, I got pretty cynical. I think I got to the point of thinking that, you know, uniformed troops out in um, in uh, Ulster were just actually duty targets and all the real work was being done, you know, under the covers. Um, and I think, you know, at that level, you know, we were sort of very much focused on, you know, targeting individuals who were clearly bad men. Um, and so I think it was a very much a sort of bring the bad men to justice uh, approach rather than, um, you know, seeing, you know, the Catholics or the Protestants or, or, or the Irish generally as the enemy. Uh, I don't think that ever really kind of played a part. Um, so it was always, as it were, I suppose, I mean, whether it's true or not, whether I did, it was a convenient sort of self-deception, but I always felt we were there to, you know, uh, restore justice uh, and uh, rather than anything else. Well, again, you have, you know, obviously the, the countries of origin, but then you have religion. And, it, and it, I found that so crazy as well. They're both Christian. And yet they, yeah. you know, are, are, and obviously it's not just in Ireland. This happens all over the world where religion, you know, separate, even Buddhists. They're a violent Buddhist, which blows my mind how that works. But, but yeah, so, you know, to have neighbors that happen to use a slightly different book, um, murder each other is, is insane. Or you just forget murder, just just dislike each other, hate each other, just because they're version of the same holy book. Yeah. And I do remember thinking, you know, and I mean, you know, probably, uh, you know, upset all sorts of people to say this, but I mean, I remember thinking, you know, actually, um, you know, you don't know what bigotry is until you've met uh, someone from Northern Ireland. <laughs> I mean, it is. It defies logic, really, in many respects. Um, uh, but it's driven by um, it's driven by fear, I think. Uh, and unless uh, you know you address those underlying um, fears, uh, I, I think you're not really going to. You know, the, the the problems will continue. I think over time, the, clearly, the situation uh, is improving. But that's the the situation that I think you're dealing with. Well, and I think it mirrors, and I'm not saying it's the same level of, you know, of uh, certainly not violence, but it mirrors what we've seen, for example, recently with the COVID. Regardless of anyone's, you know, perspective on it, there was a division. There was, well, are you, are you A or are you B? Make up your mind. And, you know, every time that we are divided, we become yeah. weaker and weaker and weaker. Then we start fighting amongst ourselves. And one of my yeah. guests recently made a really interesting point. They said, you know what happens when you know when a village is fighting against themselves? They're not looking at the castle where the real problem is. You know, medieval times, and I was like, that's that's amazing. It, you know, the moment everyone's getting on, now they're going, why are we paying taxes to this dude again? You know, so <laughs> you know we have to take a step back and go, why? When I yeah. was a little boy, am I being taught? Oh, they're a different kind of Christian. You got to hate them. They're a different kind of you know, Muslim. You got to hate them. When yeah. you know, ultimately, it's robbing that young boy or that young girl from a life of just enjoying this one opportunity on this planet that we get yeah yeah absolutely it's uh yeah and i think um 
Yes, there are uh, ruthless people who manipulate this fear factor. That's you know that's the that's what we're, we're what's behind uh, an awful lot of this. Um, and you know, yeah, but it's all playing off here. Yeah, exactly. Well, so you you have these tours in Northern Ireland. You know, we at that point, as far apart from you know the troubles, the UK has, has thank God, not known a lot of conflict since World War Two. Walk me through your journey, kind of you know the beginning of the Falklands War, and then finding yourself on Goose Green. Right. Um, well, um, uh, I, end, I I I was posted um, uh, you know shortly after um, my last Northern Ireland tour on special duties. Um, I did a tour in a headquarters uh, for about 18 months and then was uh, posted to uh, two para in, um, uh, I think, October um, uh, 1981. Uh, and uh, I just shortly before that got married. Um, my honeymoon had... Uh, uh, between this sort of um, uh, between working in this headquarters and going to Tupac, um I got married, gone on a, a honeymoon to China to try and climb an unclimbed mountain um, in the Chinese part of the Himalaya. Um, that was in um, April, May sort of time. Um, and uh, so I ended up taking over this company in Tupac D Company um um uh, quite an interesting experience um you know the, the d company were clearly um the cinderella company uh of two para for you know ever reason and i sort of over time put it down to the fact that you know d comes behind a and b with the other two rifle companies um a and b company shared a an office block uh d company shared an office block with c company which was patrol so sort of slightly different and that was the the uh the company that uh, john graham was in um and um so we were sort of the d company were sort of outliers and um as i say always behind in the queue for, for everything as they driven by the alphabet as much as anything else so um it was always, you know, uh, on exercises, you know, um, A company left forward, B company right forward. Uh, and it always was that left and right and so on. And the start of Goose Green, it was just the same. Uh, and um, D company or, or D company reserve, you know, and we'll think about you later sort of thing. Um, and, you know, it, it, it affected everything, really. Um, it... Uh, you know, meant we were last in the coup for sort of rations, and when it came to sort of allocating forward observation officers for artillery, you know, the the uh, number of um, FOOs had been reduced from uh, for per battery had been reduced from um, three to to two, and so you know, come the Falklands, guess who didn't get the qualified FOO? Good old D Company. Uh, so it had lots of implications, um, and. Um, not only that, but we seem to be the parking lot for, you know, the sort of bad lads who were proving too difficult for A and B company to to manage. Uh, and so people who would, you know, put on a the sort of infamous uh, three-month final warning 
often found themselves in D company and you know they'd either sort themselves out and stay or we'd be the people who'd have to push them on their way as it were um and so i mean i picked this up pretty quickly uh and uh i don't know it, 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 perhaps it suited me it sort of echoes if you like of you know um being a bit of an outlier you know like the, the cox of the first eight you know uh uh so i didn't worry me uh, this uh and in fact again i was a bit of an outlier because i also i was really an unknown factor you know my background no one knew anything about my background beyond the fact that i'd you know had past p company um and that was an option that i could have you know turned down as well interestingly um but um that i had done p company that was all that really mattered but no one knew much about me whereas the other two uh, company commanders of a and b company had gone through Sandhurst together they were known factors they'd served in the battalion before and so on so it was quite an interesting uh dynamic and i was quite happy with that in fact you know i really probably rather exploited it uh, and you know determined that uh, you know in d company we'd do things our way and sort the rest of them uh and i think that was it's probably a good thing, you know. I think it helped build the company's morale and, and resilience, which you know paid off uh, when we did eventually go to the uh, go to the Falklands. Um, so that was the sort of situation uh, that I kind of ended up in. Um, and then in April um, '82, I mean, I was up in uh, Scotland doing some ice climbing um, uh, with an old mate of mine and. Um, we were both there with our wives and so on. And um, then we heard about the invasion of the Falkland Islands. So, you know, kind of got interested, but, you know, wasn't expecting too much until eventually a telegram arrived for me, you know, with the one word Brunaval, which was the name of our uh, barracks and also a two para battle honor. Um, and um, the Brunaval raid. So the one word Bruneval, and that meant return to barracks. So you know, um, whoops of joy and everything else, and enthusiasm—not echoed by my wife. I have to head south to Aldershot to see what was going to happen. So that was the lead-in. Um, I suppose the <laughs> the atmosphere was still very much, you know, come on, folks, we're all grown up. We're not going to go to war for you know these couple of islands down the other end of the South Atlantic. Uh, and we don't even know where they were. You know, first thing is look at the map of Northwest Scotland and try and find them. Uh, yeah, it's and, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so it was, um, you know, the whole thing was a bit hoping that something, uh, uh, something for us to do would emerge, but we couldn't really kind of absolutely believe it was going to happen. Uh, and I think, uh, that atmosphere uh, was still prevalent when we, uh, um, you know, embarked on the Norland uh, to head south. And, you know, almost um, reinforced by that experience because, you know, the Norland was a, a, a North Sea car ferry, um, you know, plying between Rotterdam and Hull. Uh, and so, you know, the, the whole um, atmosphere of, unreality if you like was kind of reinforced by our means of transport and all that sort of stuff uh so that 
it was, you know, I mean, I think <laughs> we took it all very seriously, but, you know, it was quite difficult to really, you know, believe that we were going to have to go and do some, some mucky stuff. Um, and it wasn't really, I think, until Belgrano uh, um, uh, was sunk, uh, first of all, and then a couple of days later, the uh, Sheffield, one of our destroyers, was uh, was sunk. That you know, it really became obvious uh, that you know we, it was going to end up in something bloody and serious. Uh, and you know, until when the sort of trip down had been a very jolly affair, if you like. And um, you know, certainly once we got the news of the Sheffield, uh, you know, the Norland went pretty quiet uh, as the kind of implications uh, finally uh, sunk in. And uh, and again, uh, perhaps just reinforced by the instruction that came out that in future, you know, because of the risk of Argentinian submarines and so on, that we should all uh, sleep in, in our bunks fully clothed in case we had to abandon ship at short notice. Um, i got to say, I didn't obey the instruction. <laughs> I'd rather get a decent night's sleep. Um, but, um, you know, yeah, it all sort of, turn a little bit serious for, for a short while. I've got to say, um, not for long. I mean, the irrepressible humour um, of, um, you know, the, the, the Tom's sort of collective term for uh, soldiers in the parachute regiment uh, quickly reasserted itself. And, you know, within a couple of hours, there were some awful uh, sick jokes going around about, you know, um, sailors and the uh, you know seamen in the Sheffield and so on. I, I'm not going to repeat. It. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> pretty pretty gross. Uh, and I remember you know visiting you know my my uh, toms. Um, sort of, I think most of the toms were below the waterline on their deck, and the officers were fortunate enough in being above the, so, so descending a couple of decks to see the toms and the naffy, uh, and uh, you know hearing these jokes and thinking you know. No need to worry. The morale's all right. But uh, uh, I think this is an underlying message, really, that I took away from it, is that um, humour is so important in these situations. Uh, and it's really what keeps morale alive and hopes alive and all sorts of things. So just to kind of paint the picture, as you said, you were basically transported on a ferry. What yeah. what was the security around you? Because I mean, that is not a vessel that is built for attack. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 really, the Norland was, you know, um, uh, and their crew were unsung heroes. Um, um, the, the basically, the Norland was one of many ships taken up from trade. It's, it's what's referred to as stuffed. Um, and uh, certainly on the way down, we docked in at Freetown, uh, West Africa, and the crew were sort of given the chance to leave uh, and go home. Uh, and a couple of people, a couple of the female members of the crew left for, you know, genuine compassionate reasons. But all the rest stayed, you know, having been given the option. Uh, so I think that says quite a lot. Um, and... Um, then I think we about still ten days out from the Falklands, still outside the. Oh yes, we just about to enter the total exclusion zone. I think, 
um, signal came out uh, from uh, naval the, the uh, chief naval officer saying, right from now on, civilian crews are and will be um, uh, under uh, naval orders and subject to naval discipline. And um, um, so um, I remember the the master of the Norland. Uh, who had a Navy crew planted on top of him, but he was still very much the master of the ship. Um, really being quite upset that, you know, this signal had come out saying, you know, you're now under, um, you know, martial law, as it were. Because, you know, he said, you know, my crew had already made the commitment. You know, they had made the commitment at Freetown. And, you know, it's not a question of us now being in naval law. You know, do they not trust me, sort of thing. Uh, and uh, I mean, it was interesting, just that, that's the whole dynamics of that. Um, um, anyway, you know, that's where it was. And, and the Norland effectively uh, was used as an amphibious assault ship uh, during the landings, uh, very much in harm's way. But, you know, on the trip down and around uh, San Carlos water itself, you know, protected by uh, military warships, um, you know, destroyers and frigates. Uh, whose job was, you know, to get us to our final destination in one piece. Um, but, you know, clearly, you know, the risks existed still, you know, no guarantee that you're going to pick up an enemy submarine or whatever, uh, very much uh, uh, subject to the air attacks on San Carlos water from the Argentinian Air Force on a, a daily basis and, you know, as much at risk uh, as the uh, military ships themselves. Um, so you know, I've always thought they were a pretty impressive bunch of, of mar um, uh, mariners really delivered the goods. No, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And you think about that, being given the option to, to not <laughs> take your ferry into the you know, Argentinian yeah. war. Um, when you think about you know, the, an invasion, obviously, we're thinking of Normandy and the incredible resistance that you know, that that allied you know force had when they first hit the beaches um john was talking about you know expecting that but actually not having resistance initially is that what you experienced as well um yeah i i it's very clear that um you know the san carlos are being chosen as the um uh, uh landing point um on the expectation or at least the hope that um, it would mean the uh, landing would be unopposed. So the fact that we met no opposition um, at the start, you know, didn't surprise me. Um, I suppose, um, I think perhaps that reflects the fact that probably, you know, as a company commander, you know, I was privy to briefings that, you know, didn't percolate all the way down to, to John. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think had we been opposed, um, I'd have been disappointed. Um, I mean, it was, <clears throat> but that all said, I mean, it was still a pretty momentous um, um, night, really. And again, <laughs> it started off with all, I mean, what underpins all military operations, I think, is that it, they're always just one step away from chaos. And you've got to, first of all, you know, accept and almost expect that um, uh, and, you know, train yourself to cope with the chaos and the uncertainty. Um, but um, so, I mean, 
as we were making our way into San Carlos water, I think we were still waiting for confirmation um, from the uh, naval command that you know what the time of the what what when was HR and was it definitely going to be tonight? Uh, and we'd have no confirmation plans. We'd have the plans, yes, but no confirmation. Um, and H. Jones, our, our CO, was a pretty volatile character. You know, was chewing his fingernails, sort of waiting for this confirmation. Uh, and eventually, we um, signaled a, 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 I think, it was a frigate broadsword, um, and said, "Have is there something we should know about?" Uh, and we got a sort of uh, light signals back, sort of saying, "Yes, but it's far too secret to tell you." <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to know about the enemy and where they are and how many. <laughs> so it pulled it pulled alongside us, and they sort of using one of these sort of um, bits of string, if you like, sort of pushed over a, a, a fat wadge of, of papers. Um, and so the whole thing was a little bit sort of chaotic then. Um, uh, and then um, uh, I remember when we, you know, so we knew we were going ashore that night. We had the, uh, everything was brought forward a couple of hours and so on. So the whole thing was a bit of a rush. And while we were waiting to transfer from the Northern to um, uh, the landing craft, um, Don Ellaby, who was the master of, uh, of the Northern, got up on the PA system. And we were there, all there, you know, cammed up, ship darkened and everything else. Loads of huge bergens on our backs, everything else, sweating away in the in the uh, what was that, I think the continental lounge. Um, and LB got up on the uh, loudspeaker system, and uh, as if we were just sort of putting into Rotterdam, said, uh, "You've been a lovely bunch of passengers. It's been a pleasure having you ashore, uh, having you aboard, and and uh, so we hope you have a good time ashore, and we look forward to sailing you home safely shortly." Well, <laughs> I mean, it was it was just. Perfect. I mean, you know, got an immediate lump in my throat, um, and uh, you know, my my attitude from that moment really was, you know, the Norland had become our mothership. You know, we had really bonded with this crew. Um, uh, surprisingly, I mean, you know, it could have easily gone the other way, um, uh, and my view was right. Well, we've sailed down with the Norland, going to go and do the job ashore, and we will sail back with her she is the mothership um and the 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 relationship with the crew was extraordinary um you know um there was a large number of uh stewards um uh on the norland uh, a significant number of whom were outright queens um and so potentially combustible uh atmosphere um but I think the Toms quickly realized that, you know, if they made an enemy of the stewards, the stewards could make their life pretty miserable. Uh, and it all worked out. And, um, you know, there's one who, um, uh, I forget his name now. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter, but who was nicknamed Wendy, which sort of kind of summed up the sort of personality, if you like. Wendy was a very, very good, a born entertainer uh, and a very good piano player. So Wendy used to lead the sing songs uh, you know in the naffy in the sort of continental lounge um in the evenings and things like that uh, and became very much a, a, a battalion mascot so much so that um um he she was uh, uh, made an honorary member of the battalion and presented with battalion tie and everything else so um it was full of you know really um 
kind of uh, endearing sort of uh, moments like that, really. Uh, and uh, a real surprise. I mean, I think, you know, uh, the command element of the battalion were pretty nervous about, you know, this could all go, you know, macho Paris and, you know, <laughs> these stewards can all go down the wrong way. But um, they needn't have worried. It was just, it was an amazing experience. Um, so yeah, we went ashore. It was unopposed, and um, but again, you know, the 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 confusion, uh, sort of, or the chaos was always just one step away. I mean, we the landing craft to take us ashore arrived in the wrong order, so you know, it meant that different companies, when they went ashore, were not in the right place, and so on. It's all supposed to be well choreographed. That didn't happen, so chaos on the beachhead. Um, um we were supposed to be uh that we would been told that the, the beachhead had been secured by an SBS patrol but when we went ashore the lead company sort of met this patrol uh and you know they sort of you know who are you sort of thing you know they weren't expecting us that night and <laughs> that's not a good sign is it <laughs> when you're asked that you know, you know uh uh you know it was it was sort of you know who are you at two power who are you uh SBS uh, but we weren't expecting you until two days for another two days. <laughs> so uh, a lot of things could have gone wrong, um, but fortunately nothing seriously did. But uh, as I say, it's just a, uh, an example in these situations. And I'm sure it applies to, you know, kind of first responder type operations around the world. That, you know, um, you've got to cope with the unexpected, with the chaos uh, uh, and the uncertainty. And often, whether you succeed or fail, it comes down to your ability to do just that, to, to have the resilience to cope with uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, if you actually saw what a fire ground looks like, it is absolutely organized chaos. I mean, there's a there's an overall plan. But, um, you yeah. know, I mean, I, I'm sure anyone listening that's worked in the fire service can think of all their clumsy moments. And I've had numerous but overall you move the needle and you get the job done but it's not this hollywood orchestrated you know beautiful yeah. symphony of of firefighters it's you know i'm falling over with there's a fence on top of me because i just pulled too hard and then this guy can't get the door open and then someone walks over and goes it's unlocked you idiot <laughs> i mean there's a lot of that going on but overall yeah. we get the job done absolutely and like you said there's you need to have a plan b and a plan c that is the key to being successful yeah, well, the old adage is certainly, you know, uh, with us was, you know, that uh, uh, no plan survives the first shot. And, you know, it's uh, so true. But um, if you've got that, the, if you've got that mindset right, you know, then you overcome that. And, you know, uh, if you, you know, if you know the drills and everything else, and people know what you're going to be doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then, you know, then you have the ability to adapt and change the plan on on the hoof. Well, just before we get to your advance, Wendy, that is a great insight. I think into you know again one of the the dividing conversations at the moment. You've got this very very pro LG whatever the the acronym is, um, and then you've got the very anti, and then in the middle again are all the normal people. That like yeah, yeah, I think I'm fine with whoever loves whoever as long as it's not hurting anyone. But because we pigeonhole now, you're talking about a crew, some of which are 
or gay men and women, some of which, you know, are drag queens or whatever, whatever they do, who yeah. signed up to stay on their ship and go towards a war. This is the yeah. problem when we, you know, tar everyone with the same brush is that every single person is a single person and their sexuality and religion and everything is irrelevant. Those are some incredibly courageous individuals that unarmed said, yeah, we'll come along to a war, you know, and I'll sing some songs while we do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it is so true. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, yeah. If you look for the issues, then you'll find them. If you insist on giving everyone a label, then it's divisive, you know, um, uh, and unhelpful. Yeah, absolutely. So you arrive on shore, um, you know, kind of, and you talked about H. Jones as well. I know that's a, a sad part of this overall story. Kind of walk me through, you know, the hours after that. So, um, you know, our first objective, we were sort of uh, positioned on the sort of southern uh, perimeter of the beachhead on uh, Sussex Mountain, which is about 800 feet high, um, as I recall. Um, um, we were carrying in excess of uh, 100 pounds per man on our backs. Uh, and it was a horrific flog up to this top of this mountain. We were expecting it to take, you know, basically um, about, about three hours to get to this summit. Um, and so, you know, I think we set off. Well, we, we landed uh, on the beach, you know, just after midnight. We should have had plenty of time. To get to the top in the in the dark, uh, but you know we made and and we expected to be those essay in three hours, but that was all based before we really had uh, any experience of the terrain, um, and it was you know horrific sort of peak bog and stone runs and, and stuff like that. Uh, so it was a good three hours after first light before we actually got onto the objective, and at which stage, as soon as first light came up. Um, you know, the Argentinian Air Force started to get engaged um, uh, with the trying to disrupt the landings. I mean, fortunately, we were spread out, not an obvious target for uh, any aircraft, frankly, uh, and it wouldn't, you know, aircraft coming over were not going to pose a serious threat to the Italian, um, although you know, one had had a go at us, you know, it would possibly cause some casualties. Uh, I mean, their attention was on the shipping in, in San Carlos water. So, you know, we sort of see these things flying overhead. Uh, there'd be sort of half-hearted attempts to engage with our small arms. Uh, we had a uh, air defense detachment with this uh, with a weapon called Blowpipe, which was really pretty hopeless missile system. Um, by the time the operators of Blowpipe got their um, sort of kit ready and possible to engage, um, you know, the uh, enemy had already gone overhead uh, and the missile was not fast enough to catch him up. So <laughs> it's pretty ineffective. You couldn't get a headshot. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, the sort of limitations, if you like, of, of the kit we have are beginning to become apparent, etc. cetera. Um, um, but we got eventually got up there and we had a grandstand view, I suppose, from Sussex Mountain of San Carlos water and what was, you know, that day and, and for the following six days was, you know, sort of colloquially known as Bomb Alley. And it was, uh, it, it, I mean, you know, in a sense, it, we were witnessing, um, you know, a ship a day, you know, invariably naval ships 
um, being sunk by the Argentinian Air Force. And it was, you know, it was exciting stuff. I mean, you saw these jets coming in and, you know, the flying of these Argentinian pilots uh, certainly impressed. Um, and, you know, then, you know, you'd see some ships being struck. They would seem to be targeting the naval ships rather than the logistics ships, which I think was a blessing in a sense, because I think if they sunk more logistics ships, uh, we'd have struggled later on. Um, uh, but it was... It was pretty demoralizing. And I think we were at day three, um, you know, there's sort of mutterings going around the company of, you know, is this another Gallipoli sort of touch? And we were getting pretty cynical. Um, I mean, and certainly, you know, um, uh, the, 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 well, we sort of beginning to wonder what on earth are we doing up here? You know, there was no obvious threat to us from a sort of ground attack uh, from the Argentinian forces. The nearest they were was at Goose Green. And there was clearly no effort to come and, you know, engage us on land. Uh, so we felt pretty useless, frankly. Um, and, you know, people sort of, you know, when are we going to start taking the battle to the enemy? And that was certainly H's uh, uh, approach. I mean, a, a, you know, born aggressor. And I think there's a spirit of, the, you know, the parachute regiment as well. You know, you we were bred for offence, not, you know, not just sitting on a bald hillside waiting for things to happen. Uh, so, I mean, the momentum began to, uh, uh, build for us to do something. And H was lobbying like mad with the Brigadier Julian Thompson to uh, let us off the leash and attack Goose Green. And there's a bit of logic here because position where we were, I mean, everyone knew the war was going to be won or lost around Stanley. Uh, and position where we were around the beachhead, we were the furthest battalion from Stanley. Uh, so I think H was thinking, I know what's going to happen here. You know, I'm going to be left to defend the beachhead and the rest will go off and win the war. Um, uh, I mean, that was very much, I think, his, his mindset and everything else. Uh, and um, so he was lobbying to be led off the leash and, and attack uh, Goose Green. And eventually, I mean, Thompson, very sensibly, I think, was sought Goose Green as uh, a distraction that it could be bypassed. And, you know, the, one of the sort of great sort of things of, of, of military doctrine is concentration of effort. And I think he saw uh, an attack on Goose Green as dissipating his uh, his effort, which does need to be focused on, on winning the battle for Stanley. Um, but eventually he authorised a raid. Um, uh, and so I was, my company was sent off to secure a, uh, an assembly area, Camilla Creek, uh, as a preliminary for that uh, that raid. And it was going to be sort of a battalion uh, strength raid. So the idea was to go and sort of knock a few heads about the, uh, among the garrison at Goose Green and then withdraw. Um, and, you know, H was not at all happy with this. I think he gets sort of, how can you just ask a soldier to risk his life for just a, you know, a hit and run raid? Um, and you know, I think um, uh, probably there's prescient enough to also see that a hit and run raid was um, probably potentially unhelpful. I mean, you always have this problem with the raid is, you know, if it's a hit and run raid is when have you done enough hitting and when you start running? I mean, you know, somebody can answer that question. 
deserves the medal, you know. But uh, I mean, you know, where do you say, well, we've done enough or we've picked up another? Is it because you started to draw too many casualties that we pulled back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And then put yourself in, in, in the Argentinian shoes uh, and say, well, you know, um, how would they play that? Argentinian, um, um, uh, Argentinian forces repel parachute regiment attack. You know, that's not quite what <laughs> anyone would have wanted. Uh, you know, this is kind of morale game and everything else. Um, so, I mean, I think H saw through this. Anyway, we got, my company got halfway down to Camilla Creek and the raid was then cancelled because helicopters were, that were going to fly in some guns to support us were required elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, usual chaos. Um, and uh, so we were recalled. I got back and saw H. Uh, my view was, you know, uh, by now, uh, the limitations of our footwear were becoming very apparent and the, the dreadful conditions underfoot. Um, the people are already going down with trench foot. I remember getting back and seeing H and sort of saying, we can't afford to do this again. You know, we've, we've wasted, you know, 20 miles of footwear, of, 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 of foot life, if you like. Uh, and we've got only limited foot life in this footwear that we've got and so on. Uh, and, you know, and it was a serious issue. Um, I mean, I don't think H hadn't done the tab that I'd just done, so I don't think he sort of sympathised a great deal. But, you know, uh, it was a serious issue. Uh, and um, so I was told just to sort of, you know, shut up and get on with it. <laughs> and um, then two, oh, literally um, uh, 36 hours later, we told, I was pulled out again, raids back on, um, you go and secure the assembly area. But um, this, this time we're all going. So it had been elevated and so on. <clears throat> and I think what had happened, well, uh, I went down thinking the raid's back on. By the time I was caught up by the rest of the battalion at Camilla Creek uh, and met up with H again, he said, it's no longer a raid. We're going to recapture the settlements. So um, I gather what had happened was that in that period, um, uh, Thompson had been called to the SATNET uh, and been briefed by... Uh, uh, the headquarters back in UK, northward, uh, and was told to elevate his raid to recover the settlement. Uh, and I think he was told in no uncertain terms, if you're not prepared to do that, we'll find someone who is. Um, <coughs> and so um, uh, that was the sort of situation it evolved. And, and I mean, it's not the way a, a military operation should be planned, uh, because, you know, first of all, determine what your aim is, recapture the settlement and then that determines you know the, the resources and the plan that follows but if you know halfway through someone says oh let's just do a bit more and so on you know you haven't really got the resources required uh, and I think um, uh, Thompson always beat himself up a bit about that because he thinks he should have allocated more resources probably should have allocated this not just half a battery of guns maybe a full battery but also the um, light tanks that we had with this and so on. Um, I think he, he, he castigates himself unfairly there because actually, you know, he might have given us a full battery of guns, but we certainly didn't have, by then we'd lost the Atlantic Conveyor, so a lot of the heavy lift helicopters had gone to the bottom of the ocean. So we just, 
he'd have allocated a, a full battery of guns, um, but we wouldn't have had a full battery's worth of ammunition down on the gun line. So, you know, why risk, you know, the assets? Um, uh, so, so the whole thing was a little bit, you know, we sort of dribbled into this operation, if you like, um, you know, rather than really sort of focused, etc. cetera. Um, uh, so I think it was, well, I I think actually, uh, I just wind back a bit because I think H uh, perhaps began to realize he'd, he'd taken on more than he bargained for when we had a 24 hours, uh, first of all, to sort of recce some of the ground that we were going to attack. Um, um, and we began to get a sort of more detailed picture of the enemy positions. That hadn't been helped by the fact that, you know, uh that first night at Camilla Creek House, um just as uh first light was coming up, we were listening into the BBC World Service on our HF radios. And uh, I was up in in a sort of loft room in in, in the farmhouse uh, alongside battalion headquarters uh, and heard this announcement, you know, on the radio. Uh, it's been announced in Parliament today that there is now a parachute battalion within seven miles of Goose Green. Well, if we could listen in to uh, the BBC World Service, in, you know, so could the Argentinians. Uh, it's fairly obvious. Uh, H went absolutely apoplectic. We had a BBC um, reporter embedded with this chap called Robert Fox, who got the full brunt of uh, H's wrath. Uh, uh, and um, uh, but the net result was, you know, we were looking forward to a day under a shelter in the in this uh, in the farm buildings. Uh, but they were the obvious target, uh, or, you know, that was obviously where the enemy aircraft would come looking for us. Um, so we all had to sort of disperse out into the cubs and the cold and the wet and everything else. Um, so that didn't help morale. Um, and I think, you know, H really must have been under huge pressure at this point. You know, he'd been lobbying for this operation. Um, suddenly as the the details of enemy positions began to come in and Put up on the on the maps, you know, which began to fill more and more with red blobs, indicating enemy. Uh, and then, you know, with this setback of the announcement that the clearly the you know the attack was no longer a complete surprise. Um, I take my hat off to him because he he had his limitations. He was a bit impetuous, volatile, and so on. But I mean, I, I always think it's before the action, before you start a big you know, North Wall in the Alps or whatever, that, you know, the the the, the spirit is is truly tested. Uh, once you're involved in the action, you know, the adrenaline, the focus on the job in hand and everything else takes over. Uh, and, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced uh, exactly that uh, as, a, as a first responder. Um, so, you know, if H was beginning to feel a little bit worried, he certainly didn't show it. I mean, he absolutely, at his final briefing, you know, instilled in us, I think, a complete faith that we would prevail despite all the setbacks we'd encountered. And, uh, um, you know, I, uh, lesser men might have sort of not, well, they might have just sort of asked for a second chance to say, I don't think we can do this, uh, and uh, so on. 
but he certainly didn't and he absolutely instilled this belief complete faith that we would prevail um and i take my hat off to him for that and i think because also for his absolute focus you know if we're going to engage on this we have to succeed you know forget the idea of a raid or whatever it's not enough it must succeed um uh, we you know without a defined successful outcome this will be a failure was effectively what he was saying um and so i think that's when he was really tested i think that's kind of at that moment if you like that he perhaps earned his vc um uh, because i think you know he, he conducted things pretty well people criticized his plans of being too detailed and so on for me um well his plan actually for me painted a, a vivid picture of one way in which we might succeed we might recapture the settlement um so i sort of, sort of think in terms of visualizing success it's you know athletes are trained to visualize crossing and breaking the ribbon at the end of the 100 yard sprint or whatever it happens to be uh it's briefing too detailed perhaps um or criticized being too detailed and so on but for that, for me his briefing achieved that um and i think we all actually understood you know this is just one way it might pan out but actually come the day it's going to be very different um so um anyway we set off uh again the resources clearly limited but i think one huge mistake was made and you know i suppose really um h probably has to take the responsibility for that because it was his plan and that was the time space appreciation we just had not um appreciated how long the job was going to take if you like to cut the amount of ground and so on i mean we had the plan sort of foresaw um six uh, attacks on six separate identified enemy positions um uh, we had to cover from the start line uh, the region of uh, seven kilometers um and we'd allowed ourselves only four hours to do it well <laughs> you know in the best of conditions that was probably ambitious um but actually in the you know reality of the conditions that we faced it was completely impossible and um soon after the uh, start of the battle a good old d company in reserve as ever but we were deployed within uh, an hour of the start of the battle uh, and uh, that first night attack was you know uh, absolute chaos um we uh, <laughs> good old age sort of quarter i'd been ahead of h in his attack uh, which i shouldn't have been we got lost on the way um and um uh, he came sort of trotting up behind me and saying what the hell are you doing here you're supposed to be behind me and I said just waiting for the battle to start Colonel you know <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he said uh, right well actually you know I think uh, this again sort of indicates that he was you know people sort of say well he's a bit literal the plan was literal and so on but he was actually thinking of other ways as well um, uh, he said I think you know I'm going to go and see if we can't feed you straight through the axis of the uh, of the advance and get in behind the uh, the enemy and, and roll them up that way. So he trotted off ahead of me 
uh, on a track leading into Goose Green, uh, came back about um, half an hour later and said, I've just been shot at <laughs> from, you know, uh, from, well, uh, that hill over there. And of course, it's pitch black night, so I couldn't see where he'd been shot at from. So. so we, you know, the only way really was to advance to contact with one of my um, uh, platoons leading. Uh, and we eventually counted this position where he'd been shot at from. We started to draw fire. Uh, and it looked pretty intensive. Um, but uh, we got onto the top of this hill without picking up any casualties. You know, I mean, the, the air was thick with tracer, but fortunately, uh, no one went down. And I thought, oh, this is all too easy. Um, and uh, was about to start reorganizing when my right rear platoon uh, started coming under machine gun fire. And, you know, began to, well, only in retrospect did it work it out, if you like, but we really just sort of um, come against the sort of uh, the Argentinian right flank of the position. There's a whole lot more on our right and so on, uh, which, you know, had also been bypassed by B Company on our right. Um, so they started calling for help. And, you know, from where I was, I couldn't see precisely where they were. I couldn't see where the enemy were engaging them from. So actually, you know, I was pretty non-plus and there wasn't much I could offer. Uh, unfortunately, again, I think this is the strength. The, 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 this was the resilience in the company and the, the strength of the Plasher Red and so on, you know, constantly pushing people to use their initiative. Uh, so it was one of my other um, platoons, my my uh, uh, left rear platoon commander used his own initiative then to come across and take the pressure off the, uh, the uh, right rear uh, Yes, the right rip to. Uh, and um, so it's all a bit confusing. Um, I had really no input in that at all. Absolutely dependent on junior leaders uh, to use their initiative right from the platoon commander who'd only been out of Sandhurst for, you know, something like six weeks. Uh, um, hadn't done his platoon commander's course or anything like that at that stage. Dependent on, on people like that to use their initiative. Uh, right down to a sort of section commander level. My ability to control it or to offer guidance was frankly zero. Um, and, you know, the, the, the uh, Tom's stepped up to it. So we dealt with that problem. But in the process um, between those two um, platoons, they picked up uh, four casualties. Uh, well, two had been found and, and, and sorted. One was uh, wounded, sorry, uh, yeah, so a couple had been sorted out, one being wounded, uh, but we had effectively uh, two people unaccounted for, so missing. Uh, and then you have a dilemma because, you know, at what point do you sort of say, well, forget them and move on, uh, or do, you know, take time to try and look for them and so on? Uh, well, you know, we never found them and they were picked up later on. Uh, in the morning, uh, you know, one was um, one was uh, well, one was a section commander who'd been shot, and beside him was his uh, uh, one of his section, um, who interestingly had been when he was picked up, found dead, lying across his section commander's body, and with a shell dressing uh, in his hand, ready to uh, obviously him said you know he was going to try and apply first aid. One of the things we'd emphasised before we'd started this battle and before, during our training on the Norland was, you know, 
in the attack, you cannot stop uh, and, and look after casualties. You've got to push on, secure the objective, and then we sort the casualties out. Because if you are there, you know, applying first aid to someone who's just been shot, you're still in the killing zone. And this was a sort of mindset which we had to sort of get across after Northern Ireland, you know, counterinsurgency, where the you know counterinsurgency operations minimise casualties. You know, the first priority is to sort casualties out and try and save them. You know, this was not counterinsurgency, uh, and it was a different uh, set of uh, principles had to apply. Uh, and here was an example where you know you know this young Tom had done the natural thing, you know, try and help his injured uh, section commander that he'd actually done exactly the wrong thing at that time you know and he should have just okay sorry mate but i've got my job to finish we've got to secure the objective etc so you know it's quite an interesting um uh, opening experience uh, all this but the real implication that i'm getting to is that at that point it became completely obvious that our time space appreciation had been you know nonsense frankly um and um it took us i mean on every exercise i've ever done you know i mean if you were still reorganizing after 20 minutes you know you had the directing staff sort of beating around the head and sort of saying what's going on um but it took us an hour and a half to reorganize before you know eventually i mean people have been pulled in every direction this is pre-gps so you know i mean they could be on the far side of the moon for all they knew uh in trying to work out where I was, where the rest of the company was, etc., um, and we had this, you know, additional difficulty. You know, where's so and so? Well, we need to try and find him, and so on. He needs he just lost. You know, we don't want to leave him behind, etc. Or is he, you know, injured or or dead? Um, so, you know, an hour and a half flew by, uh, and uh, um, by the time it, daylight emerged, um, you know, we were only. Well, we hadn't secured either settlement. We were really only halfway down the uh, isthmus that we had to uh, recapture. And um, the plan really was, well, it effectively went out the window. Um, under cover of darkness, we had all the advantages. Uh, you know, we were able to close. Uh, and once we closed with the enemy, you know, frankly, there was no competition. Uh, I don't think they had any... Um, there was not a, a, a fervent will to fight, if you like, among the Argentinians in in, in the dark. Uh, and you know, as I say, once closed, we went just went through them like a knife through butter. Um, but come daylight, absolutely bald open ground, um, great fields of fire and visibility, and so on. All the advantage went onto the defence. Uh, went to the defence. Uh, the Argentinians, uh, and so we had a you know very different different uh, battle then to engage, uh, and um, I mean effectively uh, daylight brought us a complete stop for <coughs> virtually a complete stop for um, three hours, and the A Company who were left forward were uh, you know as daylight came out, so we were effectively ambushed uh, from an Argentinian position on Darwin Hill, uh, which was a bit of a surprise. That uh, they were there. Um, uh, I was in reserve again, uh, looking at this. B Company had, had gone over this main ridge line towards Goose Green uh, as uh, daylight came up, forward slope, uh, and were brought to halt by 
uh, a nest of heavy machine guns about you know a, a good two kil kilometers to their front <coughs> or just under two kilometers to their front and you know basically the battalion was brought to standstill um and um and it, it, this is the kind of situation where you know thompson sort of was trying to beat himself up and say i should have given you more resources and I, i've always said no you know if we made a sensible time space appreciation it wouldn't have been an issue you know uh so i found myself um as i say in reserve uh and to my right i could see on the shoreline the the eastern um sorry the uh, so the western shoreline uh of, of the isthmus i could see uh, a number of argentinians uh go heading south um clearly being bypassed in the night and trying to rejoin their own position um and so they see them traversing a little sort of flat piece of ground then disappearing uh behind the the cliffs or the sort of shoreline itself and i thought well that looks like it might be a covered approach so um i reasoned that actually if we picked up the same sort of terrain and got ourselves down to that shoreline we might be able to make a concealed approach into a right flanking uh, uh, attack on this Bokka position which is holding up B company um I offered this to H uh to wind my neck in not to tell him how to run his battle um uh so I accepted that okay uh then a little while later we started being bracketed by enemy artillery so I thought where I was it's pretty sort of uh, exposed position so I thought I'd try and avoid that by moving forward under the lee of this sort of main uh, main ridge line across the isthmus um uh H saw me he told me that I was to stay where I was um so asked me what the hell I was doing and I used the opportunity again to say look you know I think it's an opportunity to right flank this problem uh and again was you know told just to stay off the net sort of thing um H's problem, I think, was that he had allowed himself to become too embroiled in A Company's battle uh, and had lost complete perspective uh, uh, of the battlefield. So he was, he was really almost acting as a, you know, a platoon commander or a section commander in A Company's battle rather than as a battalion commander saying, you know, actually, I've still got half or more than half my battalion uh, unengaged that I could do something useful with. Um, so that's quite uh, frustrating. And eventually I took the view that, you know, until Darwin Hill, Darwin Hill fell to the to, to A Company, we weren't going to go anywhere. Uh, and um, that was clearly going to take some time. And the day was suddenly, should have been over by now, but it was suddenly going to turn into a very, very long day indeed so uh, my reaction was to uh, you know tell the tons to get a brew on uh, which I think was kind of met with some surprise by uh, some of the guys uh, because it's not the sort of thing that you know you would do on an exercise mid-attack to stop and get a brew on Have a cup of but tea. you know we were going to need all the fuel we 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 had uh, if we're going to keep going until the end uh, so I we got a brew on I just remember my porridge had just come to the boil 
uh, when I got the news over the radio, sun rays down, uh, H had been uh, uh, shot. Uh, and um, uh, shortly after, um, uh, I got a radio call from Chris Keeble with 2IC saying, you know, uh, go and try and find the company and see what you can do to help. So um, porridge still in one hand, rifle in the other. <laughs> we set off like a vagabond army. Um, um, the effect, I mean, people talk about the the uh, the effect of the CO being shot and so on. And, and I mean, you know, kind of two things can happen. You know, one is, uh, you know, the CO's killed, you know, morale gets shot to bits, you know, and everyone loses heart. That's sort of one scenario. Uh, and the other is, you know, uh, with, um, you know, uh, anger and a fit of anger and, and, and whatever, we charge in and, and seek our revenge against the enemy. Sort of two typical sort of scenarios with sort of long times of military history. Uh, I mean, the fact is, neither hand um, that. H is being shot really surprised no one because we knew he was a passionate believer in leading from the front and not asking anyone to do something that he wouldn't do himself. Um, um, and, you know, we all knew that he was, you know, volatile, headstrong and so on. So it didn't really surprise anyone, you know. I mean, the kind of comment around my company when he went, you know, when we got the news was, you know, a mad bugger, you know, but we all thought it was going to happen. Uh, so we just carried on as uh, as we were, really. I think the difference that his death made, though, was that it liberated the battlefield. I mean, it finally um, allowed um, his subordinates to use their initiative and get things moving again. So B Company uh, pinned down forward slope uh, by these heavy machine guns, uh, called up our anti-tank missiles uh, once Darwin Hill fell, uh, from with which they could then engage, you know, uh, the the uh, heavy machine gun Sangers, uh, and you know, I having decided that trying to find B Company and join them on the forward slope was a pretty fruitless task. Again, pushed Keeble to allow me to have a look at you know whether I could outflank the position. Uh, and so I took my company down to the beach uh, and um, to see where that would lead us. Interestingly, it got us 500 yards short of this position, and there's a sort of grazed uh, sheep pasture. It's like a sort of billiard table, no cover at all. Uh, and so, you know, clearly we weren't going to be able to get closer to the enemy uh, under cover. Uh, but we were finally, at least, within our own uh, light machine gun uh, range. Uh, so I got all my machine guns down on a little um, embankment down by the beach um, and started to engage these uh, these uh, enemy positions. About the same time, or very soon after, the Milan started to engage these positions, uh, and we had a sort of useful uh, double act going fairly soon after that. Uh, you know, Milan missile would hit us, an enemy sanger, uh, blow it to bits. The survivors would try and, you know, crawl out to find shelter in another sanger, and we were able to slot off the uh, those survivors. Uh, and I mean, literally, 
very soon after that, the white flag started to appear. Um, so then the, the question was, you know, was this a genuine offer to surrender or was it, you know, a come on? And experience in Northern Ireland was, you know, kind of, I think, could easily be a, be a come on. So, you know, don't immediately assume it's a surrender. Uh, my own view at that point was, well, if it is a surrender, you know, it's going to save us an awful lot of uh, time and ammunition if we accept that. So I propose that, you know, we take the risk uh, and that we assume it's a, a, a genuine offer of surrender. Um, it took me about half an hour to persuade, you know, the 2IC, Tony 2IC who taken command uh, and other people that, you know, this was a, a risk worth taking. Um, eventually I got the go ahead um, and I had a little sort of conversation with those around me uh, saying, right, um, you know, this is my judgment call. Uh, so it's time I earn my pay. I will be the first one to move uh, and, as it were, test the genuineness of this uh, of this surrender. Um, as I got to my feet, one of my sectoring commanders, a big chap called Tom Harley, sort of grabbed me and pushed me down fairly firmly and said, don't be a prat, sir. Uh, you're, you, you, you're needed for other things. This is Tom's work. Uh, and... Um, well, I didn't protest too strongly. <laughs> I left him to lead the the approach up to. I've got to say, it was probably the longest five hundred yards of uh, of all our lives. You know, is this going to hold something going wrong? Someone let off an, another Milan missile. Another of my Tom's tripped a, a mine up, and uh, and a big bang went off. And you know, so every moment thinking, oh Christ, it's all going to unravel. Uh, fortunately, you know, it didn't. We got on to this position, and you know, uh, I mean, it was the scene of devastation. Most of the you know, most had fled the position, and those that were on about 30 or 40 uh, Argentinian soldiers were all either, you know, uh, I mean, dead or or, or injured, and uh, you know, all the you know, fit to fight still ones. You see them fleeing across Goose Green airfield towards Goose Green. Uh, led, uh, it seemed to me, or seemed to us, uh, led by um, an officer on a tractor. And there's a trail of, sort of Argentinian soldiers desperately chasing after this tractor, trying to climb aboard it and so on. Um, and my runner says, oh, there's leadership from the front, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and I went there, the guy was an officer or not, I really don't know, but it you know, suited this, the scene at the time. Um, and so my reaction was then just, you know, we we're at this phase of war, you know, exploitation, certainly hot pursuit. Yeah, let's hot pursuit. Uh, and, um, you know, we really barely uh, stopping to reorganize and left some of my uh, company behind just to guard the prisoners until they could be uh, handed over. We just, you know, charged after them. Um, and I was... Um, you know, very pleased when, you know, a little while after the battalion to IC got on the radio and said, you know, head for Goose Green. I said, we already are, you know, it's uh, not waiting for orders. We're just going to go and do it. Um, uh, and that was all okay until we began to cross the airfield and we started to come under um, uh, AAA fire. Um, now, AAA um, guns were anti-aircraft guns, but they, uh, you know, 
lowered the barrels and were using them as a, effectively, uh, you know, ground cannon. Uh, and that was pretty frightening. So we managed to find some dead ground on the north side of the uh, airfield and hit the, took that down as our route to, to Goose Green. Um, we then ended up in a minefield, um, uh, fortunately not well laid. And they were all trip mines, so you could see the trip wires fairly clearly. You didn't see the mines themselves, but you know if you avoided the trip, uh, you're going to be fairly safe. But nevertheless, it, it, it kind of um, it complicated life, put it that way, um, and brought one of my students to a bit of a standstill. So I sort of pulled them out and told them to head up on the right, covering fire, fed another platoon in, um, and eventually we got to uh, the schoolhouse. Uh, and um, uh, which was known to be a, a sort of a holding area for the Argentinian garrison, you know. So you know, a lot of soldiers have been seen around the, the schoolhouse, just north of the settlement itself. Um, and between us and the schoolhouse, I could see what looked like a deserted um, um, command post. So I thought, well, I just neutralised that first. So I got a couple of my, or one of my sections up, and ordered them to. Um, stick a light anti-tank rocket into this command post. And uh, the situation began to descend into pure farce because we missed the bloody uh, barn door at 50 yards uh, with this, you know, it, it was 50 yards ahead of us. You know, the light anti-tank rocket has a, a range of accurate range of up to about sort of 200 yards. We should have hit it. Uh, but you know, this is it. Picture the scene. Here's this young Tom, this sort of shoulder-fired rocket, um, but he's been almost uh, on the run chasing the enemy. He's then tiptoed through a minefield, so he's panting a bit. <laughs> I was going to say, his, his, his nervous system might be slightly higher. Yeah, he's just a little uh, uh, overwhelmed. So, you know, the sort of rocket is waving around like, you know, um, a divining stick, uh, and he misses it. So we can get another guy up. Same thing happens. And eventually the section commander steps up and it little it had a bit more time to recover, a little bit more experience, you know, scores a bullseye. And we all sort of, uh, standing around, sort of give him a round of applause. Uh, <laughs> this is not what you expect to see on a battlefield, but, you know, I, I promise you it's what, what occurred. Um, so, you know, you know, life went on. We put in an attack on the schoolhouse. At the same time, uh, the... My one of my opportunities I'd sent up on the right that mentioned earlier. Um, had, I got the news from their platoon sergeant that the platoon commander had gone up to uh, take a surrender from another white flag he'd seen flying. Um, well, that was the first I'd heard of it. No one else knew what he was doing. Um, and um, so it, it was a potential disaster waiting to happen. And, and, you know, in fact, that's exactly what happened. You know, I mean, I told him get the message to him, tell him to stay where he is. You know, the, the, the lesson, if you like, from the earlier surrender was you need to have everyone lined up knowing what you you plan to do before you go ahead and do it. Um, and, and this hadn't happened. Uh, it all went wrong. They were um, uh, started to parley with the Argentinians. Some small arms fire came in from somewhere, probably from our machine guns, um, and the whole thing unraveled. And his, this... Uh, platoon commander was shot with the section that he had with him. 
So I sort of left the attack to take care of itself on the schoolhouse with my, left it to my 2IC and I went up to join this platoon to see what was going on. Um, cut a long story short, eventually that all, all resolved itself. But I was then told not to advance further uh, because other things were planned and emerged that actually we finally got uh, an airstrike uh, lined up coming in, a friendly airstrike. Um, and, you know, uh, we'd been waiting for this for much of the day, but fog at sea had sort of stopped that taking place. Um, so I was told to go firm, wait for the airstrike, and then, you know, see what needed to be done after that. And we heard the jets coming in. Um, uh, but uh, the jets were actually coming in um, uh, from the south. Uh, I expect them coming in from the from the north, uh, and it was flying straight towards us, not towards the enemy positions. Uh, and sort of slowly, uh, I realised that this was not uh, a Harrier, but the Argentinian Skyhawk. And when its cannons opened up and it was coming straight for us, lined up on a track, uh, <laughs> I thought it was the end of a promising career, I have to say. Uh, and literally this cannon fire coming and stitching in, I felt all I had to do was put my hand out and it would be gone. Uh, incredibly no casualties. Um, uh, and then, you know, two minutes later, we could hear jet engines again. You know, is it ours again? <laughs> Unfortunately, it was our aircraft this time, um, and they went in and attacked the settlement, neutralised the enemy artillery and, um, and the AAAs, um, and things began to sort of get uh, under control. But again, it was a, sort of a period of absolute, well, the unexpected every step of the way, you know, uh, pure chaos. Um, and then the instruction came over that we were to go firm and slowly it became clear or you know during the night it then became nearly last line at this stage um became clear that the, the plan was to negotiate a surrender uh, of the settlement uh, of the argentinian garrison in the settlement um so that was kind of at the end of the, the battle my brief during the night came down that you know, I was to discreetly oversee um, a sort of parade out, a, a meadow outside the settlement where the sort of formal surrender would take place. Um, the uh, deal had been that we would allow the Argentinians to surrender with dignity, sort of appealing to the Latino kind of um, uh, mindset, if you like. Um, and as we sat there waiting for this little ceremony to take place, we couldn't believe it's thousands or hundreds and hundreds of Argentinians uh, poured out of the settlement uh, and went through this surrender ceremony. Uh, and it was just, you know, unbelievable. Uh, and we, as the lead company at this point, went forward to disarm them. Uh, and, um, you know, we must have looked like you know, sort of hundred or so, less than a hundred by this stage, ninety or so, bedraggled vagabonds, and the Argentinians must have thought, you know, what the hell is going on? John was talking about that too. If they had actually known the numbers that were out there, and like you said, the if the supply ships had been hit, how close, you know, it could have turned completely the other way. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, absolutely. I mean, they wanted a counterattack uh, during the night. I mean, we were down to our last rounds of ammunition and, until we could be resupplied at night. Um, you know, there wouldn't have been much we could have answered with. But, uh, I mean, I have to say, uh, though, that, um, uh, you know, as night fell, I, I did think the day was ours. I mean, I knew we were short of ammunition and so on. That's absolutely bloody knackered. Um, but I had this, you know, you get a feel, you know, uh, and there'd be no evidence of, of counterattacks from them uh, throughout the day, despite opportunities and so on. Um, they didn't show that aggression that suggested there was going to be one. I, I, you know, I slept quite well that night. <laughs> now, as far as the why, I remember being a young boy, you know, and them saying a lot of them were, you know, Argentinian farmers that were kind of forced to go over there. When we talk about the current conflict, you know, the Ukraine were well, one of the current conflicts. You know, my whole thing is, well, again, we're painting Russia as the enemy. How many Russian men were told to go invade a country that they have no interest in invading they just want to get back to their life in in their home you know what did you see as far as that that why i'm sure there was some some fearsome soldiers that were all in on the mission in the argentinian side but did you see a lot of people that you know were basically voluntold to go over there as well um well yeah i mean certainly there was um you know it was difficult to detect um you know kind of um determination or, 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 you know, I mean, I think visibly, you know, they were, um, I think, not well led. Um, you know, whenever we took prisoners, they all looked pretty despondent and uh, uh, disorientated, really. I mean, with a sort of kind of what, what, what are we doing here? Uh, and they had been clearly misled uh, in terms of what the mission was, that they were coming to liberate the Val Malvinas. Uh, that's what they believed, and suddenly they were found they were occupying the uh, Malvinas. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think it, there's some close comparison with the uh, Russian army in, in Ukraine, and uh, I guess their morale must be uh, pretty fragile. Um, you know, uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no question, you know, they were not well-led, uh, they were misled by their leaders um and i think you know clearly it undermined um it certainly didn't contribute to their will to fight in that way uh and you know that's the uh, you know that's one of the essential ingredients of winning a battle you know is if you can undermine um the enemy's will to fight then that's half the job done probably more important than the material assets you have to help absolutely i think that goes to a nation as well you know divide and conquer or unify and rise up yeah 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 and uh, yeah morale is um uh, you know a precious ingredient <laughs> whichever side you're on uh, and you know i think there's no question you know um our morale was high um you know we i mean there's no question Goose Green had been a very serious neck stretch, you know, but, uh, you know, I think our morale, our leadership, you know, thinking very much of H and, and, and so on, um, you know, helped us prevail. 
now again like i think i was uh god how old was i i think eight when it happened have i got that right yeah eight um so I remember it being, you know, a, a, a moment of pride, obviously. I mean, you guys were actually doing the heavy lifting, but as a nation, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of unification. How were you guys received when you came home? But then also, what was the longevity of that gratitude for the Falklands era soldier? Mm, um, I think, well, first of all, I think I just sort of touch on how were we received by uh, uh, the Falkland, Falkland Islanders. Uh, and I mean, there is no question uh, of their gratitude. I mean, the Goose Green, the community had been locked up in their community hall uh, for four weeks. And so, I mean, it really was a genuine act of liberation. Um, and, you know, until then, if you like, my attitude had been, well, we're just there doing a job, you know, actually, you know, <laughs> group of uh, you know um, uh, sheep shaggers, seven thousand miles away. You know, wasn't my concern. It was um, you know, it was a professional soldier. We're paid to go and do what is required. Uh, I think you know, liberating the the community at Goose Green kind of started to um, you know change my view somewhat. I you know, began to realise actually that this was uh, you know. This was a just war, certainly, if you like. Uh, um, that we were engaged in something much bigger than just being a professional soldier. Uh, um, and I think again, you know, when we after our next battle at Wireless Ridge, and we went into Stanley, you know, the obvious gratitude with which we were received was, you know, frankly uh, overwhelming. And uh, I was posted back to the Falklands um, for a year in. Uh, <laughs> 1989, seven years after the end of the war. And, um, you know, that was still very obvious then. In fact, you know, the garrison generally at that stage were kind of tolerated by the islanders as any large garrison tends to be. But because I'd been there in 82, you know, the islanders couldn't do enough for me, if you like. Um, and uh, so it's quite interesting. Getting back home, um, I think, um, well, we missed this sort of great homecoming that uh, you know, the, the Marines had, you know, sailing back into Portsmouth um, and Southampton. Uh, we were um, ferried back to Ascension Island on the Northern, uh, which was, you know, a joyous uh, trip, really. Um, and uh, then flown back into uh, Bryce Norton. So we had no grand welcome. I mean, to be fair, um, uh, our, our, our Colonel-in-Chief, who was Prince Charles then, um, came down to Bryce Norton to welcome us back and so on. That was, you know, you know, all appreciated. But it was, a, you know, very quiet sort of homecoming. Um, I think... You know, certainly, you know, among my community and friends and so on, I think uh, uh, I, I did feel appreciated. Um, uh, I, I think there was a very kind of, um, there was a pride in, in the sort of population, I think, in terms of, you know, what we'd done. We were proud ourselves, but I mean, you know, I think it was this pride which was shared across communities 
and, and so I think I've certainly um, felt appreciated. But I think the difficulty uh, is that um, uh, in some ways, you know, everyone wants to sort of say, well, what is it like? Um, and they want to talk to you about it and so on. And um, uh, I felt sort of, in a way, a bit alienated. You know, I didn't know what to say when people say, what was it like? Well, it was hard. You know, it was the same on big expeditions. You know, people say, what was it like? Oh, yeah, bloody hard. But, you know, and then you, but it's not a conversation. <laughs> yeah. And um, you've got to sort of, uh, well, so I asked myself why. Uh, and, um, you know, I think I just felt that, you know, the expeditions as well, it's exactly the same experience. You know, actually, unless you're talking to someone who's been there or been somewhere similar, you know, it's it's impossible to really communicate what it was like. Um, and uh, I mean, I, you know, last year got my own uh, book published on on my Falkland experiences. And, um, and it's quite interesting because my first line editor, if you like, was my wife. And so she was reading stuff I had written, and she said, "But I've never heard about this incident before. Why didn't we talk about it?" And uh, I mean, that was a sort of a, a sobering moment, and you know, led me to write, you know, a few paragraphs on that itself, because you know, actually, um, but it, I, I mean, I'm sure I'm not exceptional. I think you know, it is. A, I'm sure that for most people, it's a sort of it's a thing apart. It's alienating, and you 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 don't know how to communicate it. Um, not without a lot of thought, or perhaps I can communicate it better on paper than in a conversation. Uh, and I guess you know, I I mean, thinking of of, of um, uh, your audience as well. That um, I mean, I I guess they must all have experience of that. I think you know, if you've been in. Uh, a sort of serious neck stretching situation, whether it's fighting fires or, or whatever. Um, you don't know how to put it into words. I don't think it's idleness. I think it's well, maybe it is idleness. But uh, you know, it's a combination of that and, and reluctance to put it into words, unless you unless you feel that you're genuinely being un understood. And I think that's the alienation. That you, you start talking to someone about these experiences. Do they really understand, or am I just wasting my breath? Absolutely. I, I wrote a book three years ago, and I know exactly what you're talking about because it wasn't a biography, but I used stories from my career to illustrate a point in each chapter. So it could be mental health, sleep deprivation. You know, there was a takeaway for each one. But some of my family were like, I had no idea, and the sad thing is, like this is these these are these are singular calls over for mine a short career, fourteen years. But these are what first responders, you know, military members, whatever it is. This is this is their life year upon year upon year. And like you said, you know, when 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 we're asked, which I have to be fair, I haven't really been asked this really much, but I hear a lot of people. This really jars with them. Is oh, what's the worst thing you've seen? Or, you know, mm. in the military, oh, what was it like to kill someone, you know, yeah. but yeah. but you, you can't unless you can climb inside my head, which I don't recommend. <laughs> it's not fun. Yeah. Um, just just be 
buy the book, buy Philip Neem's book and, and your, or John's book, and you'll get an idea then without interrupting, without, you know, formulating your own opinion, but you'll be able to be led through this journey and they'll paint the picture. And then by the end of it, when you close the book, you'll understand a little piece of what they went through. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think, the, you know, I absolutely agree. Um, uh, uh, I mean, I think the other aspect of the homecoming, again, and we touched on it earlier, uh, was, you know, I mean, how did we deal with um, soldiers who had been impacted by some very difficult experiences? And, you know, I mean, I can think of two cases in my company, which sort of, you know, I look back and, uh kind of worry me um one was a chap who was injured at what became known as the white flag incident where the platoon commander was killed and everything else and he was very badly injured um and um you know managed nevertheless to extricate himself from the sort of killing ground if you like uh and get back to our own uh lines um um I mean, seriously shot up, and he was. Uh, uh, we managed to evacuate him that night, and he lived. Um, but he rejoined us. Uh, I think, I don't know, sort of uh, having physically recovered um, about uh, five months later, he came back to the company, and uh, you know, using a sort of an old-fashioned expression, I mean, he was unbiddable. Um, you know, nothing wrong with his conduct beforehand. He wasn't one of these who'd been posted to me on a three-month warning like many had been. Um, but he he was just, you know, uh, he completely unbiddable. And and so he kept on ending up on, on charge and being marched up in, in front of me and I had to sort of dish out of punishment and so on. And eventually I got to this, oh, I sent him off to see the doctor and I see the padre and so on, with no effect at all. Uh, and in the end, for the greater good, if you like, I decided I had, you know, we had to discharge him. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I regret that now. I think we should have done more for him. Uh, there wasn't more, obviously, on the menu that I could have done. But, you know, that was the position we were in then. And I think, you know, looking back, you know, it was shocking that we discharged him after what he'd done and been through. Um, and the other chap who I remember was my my company runner, who, you know, was a natural rogue, um, but a very um, effective, talented rogue. Um, and, I mean, you know, he was my pillar of strength, if you like. You know, he kept me, you know, fed. He kept me in cigarettes <laughs> because he smoked and I didn't or profess not to, uh, things like that. Uh, and I did start smoking down there. Uh, I haven't given up eight years earlier. Um, um, at one stage, effectively, you know, I was cut off with uh, one of my, at Wireless Ridge, uh, one of my platoons, and uh, was concerned about what was going on with the other two. Um, and I'd lost radio contact with them. And uh, so I sent this chap, Hanley, back and said, look, you know, I'm busy up here. Go and grip these two platoon commanders and tell them what to do. And, I, you know, eventually, sort of half an hour, an hour later, uh, I uh, rejoined them. 
And there was Hanley, I mean, you know, the two young platoon commanders saying, yes, Hanley, no, Hanley. Uh, he was he was running the company. <laughs> uh, I was almost redundant. Uh, uh, well, I mean, you know, he, he, he was an exceptional bloke. Uh, and anyway, um, the, the Christmas after we'd got back, uh, he smuggled back an Argentinian pistol uh, that he'd liberated. Um, and we'd all been ordered, you know, if you've got any contraband weapons and so on, hand them in and so on, and Hanley hadn't. And he was arrested, at a, he lived in Nottingham, he was arrested at a pub in, in Nottingham waving around this Argentinian pistol. And uh, the police wisely you know, sent him back to us to deal with uh, with him rather than you know, send him through this uh, civil process. Um, and so he was on a charge marched in front of the CO who sentenced him to 30 days in jail, uh, in the battalion jail. Um, and as he sort of marched out and I was sort of alongside him, um, uh, he said, oh, no, I know what happened. He sort of said to the CO, uh, will you give me time out of jail because my brother's getting married? His brother was also in the company uh, and his wedding is, is about to take place. Um, and the CO said no, you know. And uh, so as he was sort of being marched down to the jail, Hanley sort of said to me, um, you know, I'm going to my brother's wedding. I said, no, not Hanley. I'm going to my brother's wedding. Hanley, don't be a prat, you're not. Well, he went to his brother's wedding. <laughs> he broke out of jail uh, and outwitted uh, um, uh, the military police. Um, and so he eventually came back, having attended the wedding, turned himself in, but was charged again for, you know, breaking out of the jail. And at this point, the CO um, decided he'd had enough and, you know, discharged Hanley. And I pleaded his case, you know, I said, um, you know, He's a very good man. We should hang on to him. No, you know, and in fact, I kind of got the impression that, you know, the CEO saw me as part of the problem, if you like. Um, and um, so he was discharged. And I looked back and he he was clearly devastated. And, he, you know, he come back to Everyone Forces Day. Uh, one year he came back and he got into a fight. He was just, you know, he was unsettled <coughs> and um, seriously beaten up. Um, by uh, some soldiers from another regiment and um, never fully recovered as a result of that. Now, I look back at that as well and say, you know, that was shameful, really. Um, you know, but uh, those were the days we were in, you know, uh, and it was still very different. It was still, you know, just stag on. Uh, a bit like we were discussing at the start around the you know people returning from the world wars and so on. Uh, and we had no understanding um, of, you know, why people are behaving oddly and things like that. Uh, now I think we do, and I think it, it is a different culture now, but um, doesn't undo, you know, those sad occasions. So that's something that I've talked about a lot. If you have someone who, as you mentioned, you know, when they first came into the company, like some of the people that maybe you ended up with in D company, um, yeah. were a problem from day one and they continue to be a problem. And then, you know, you get rid of them. That's, that's a different conversation. But I always say, if you've got a police officer, a firefighter, a paramedic, a dispatcher, you know, someone when they were first with you was a great 
member of mm. your company, of your, your military, whatever it is, and then they change, that's a very different conversation because they came into you one way and that's a huge indication that it's something to do with the job. Obviously, there's compounding elements outside the job, but the job is contributing to their personality change. So I can put my hand on my heart and we're talking only you know, 15 years ago, 18 years ago, where, you know, we'd, we'd poke the bear. Someone was having a bad day in the fire station, we'd make fun of them and, you know, you'd, you'd make it worse. But now with this lens of mental health that we've all been educated on, you realize that yeah. that angry guy, that salty guy isn't salty, they're struggling, you know, and this is the compassion that we got. If you were, if you never should have been in the uniform, then that's a whole different conversation. But if you had someone, as you said, that was a great soldier, that was a great police officer, and now 10 years in, they're an absolute mess, that yeah. is where we need to be compassionate as as their brothers and sisters to take care of them. They may not be able to continue in that profession, but we can't be judgmental. We can't be provoking them. We've got to look at it with a much more compassionate lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, uh, I agree, yeah. And, you know, uh, Gerald Hanley was, you know, he was, he always, he, he, I mean, in a sense, he was always close to trouble, but he was a bloody good soldier. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, so uh, he always required some management, if you like, um, but, um, but he was still a good soldier. Uh, and you know, often it's these uh, difficult people who actually are the most valuable when it comes to the crunch. Absolutely, I think this is the the thing with the what happened to us before we put the uniform conversation. There's a lot of us that our trauma when we were younger made us good firefighters, yeah. good soldiers, and now in 2023, when we're having this open conversation, the the key is that trauma can become a superpower if you're able to deal with it. Now that we have these tools, we want people with a storied, you know, early life. You know, choir boys don't become great. Firefighters is just the way it is, you know. So, yeah. but if it's left unaddressed and there's a lot of people in uniform that had some horrible things happen when they were younger, then that becomes a, a fracture to their foundation, which is going to rear its ugly head at some point. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, well, uh, it's a step in the right direction. I think we've taken over the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's difficult uh, because I think, you know, it, it's very difficult for people who've not been involved in that sort of environment really to quite understand um, what the issue is or may be. Uh, and that's the, the, that is undoubtedly part of the problem. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about writing a book. So your book is Penal Company on the Falklands. So talk to pe people about, you know, the story that you've written and then where they can find that book. Right. Uh, the book is uh, published by Pen and Sword and I think probably published in America on the, uh, I forget the name of their American uh, publishing company, but it's, you know, it's Google. It, it, you'll find it on Google. Um, and it's, um, you know, a penal company on the Falklands, uh, a memoir of the parachute regiment uh, at war. Um, I thought of writing this actually about uh, over t 10 years ago um, and two sort of triggers really uh, behind this. Um, 
first of all, I, I'd been involved in a, uh, a, a helping produce a film uh, down there called Return to the Falklands. And that was in 2012, um, to celebrate the, um, whatever it was, 30th anniversary uh, of the war. <coughs> and um, the um, producer, a chap called uh, Jeremy Friesen, who was a really good chap, and he absolutely sort of won our confidence. And I think, you know, this is what uh, both myself and, and uh, John Graham were in the film. And uh, I think we trusted him, and that's why it was a good film. Uh, because he, we trusted him and he listened and so on. Uh, and um, as we're coming to the end of, of the film, he said, you know, Phil, uh, you know, you really ought to write a book about your experiences. Uh, he said, I can see it now, the title, he said, from Everest to the Falklands and back to Everest. And sort of because, you know, it recounted some of my climbing experiences as well as, you know, and so on over, you know, um, over Chilean um Malbec in the in the pub, um, so um, that planted the idea. Oh, maybe I should. And then, uh, shortly, uh, a little later that year, uh, I was asked to go and give a talk at the Royal Engineers Depot in uh, Chatham, and um, it was in their sergeant's mess. And the word had been put out, uh, and uh, you know, my, my I was brought up in Kent as well, uh, and you know, a lot of my family turned up to listen to my story, and there's other people, a large number of people in the garrison. And as I got up to start my presentation on the Falklands, you know, I saw a lot of hands waving from the back of the, the sort of auditorium, and I realised that there was about a dozen of my old um, Toms from the Falklands in the audience. Uh, most, you know, some NCOs and some Toms and so on. Uh, and I thought, oh, blimey, now I've got to tell the truth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> rearrange the script a bit. But anyway, I actually opened by describing, you know, my arrival in Tupar and what I had found in D Company, um, you know, the, the, with the Cinderella and all this sort of stuff. And um, so after I'd finished and so on and everyone had adjourned to the bar, um, this chap who'd been my company medic uh, and was now running a, a very successful construction business uh, came over and put a beer in my hand and said, but Phil, didn't you ever know that we were known as Penal Company? And that was the first I'd heard of Penal Company, uh, genuinely. Uh, I mean, you know, I, well, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't, uh, Dale, but uh, now that you put it that way, uh, of course, I realised we were a penal company, but I just <laughs> never heard it. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, th that was a trigger. I think I really ought to write their story. They've come down here to listen to me tell their story at this presentation. Uh, and I really ought to, you know, write their story uh, and get it out in the public. Um, well, eight years later, um, I'd written... I done it, it. Did a creative writing course, and the course of that, I produced my first three thousand words, but it <laughs> hadn't got beyond that. And I was struggling with, you know, quite how to write the story, what to include, and you know, some of it was going to be uh, contentious. You know, some of it there was anger that you know uh, I wanted to share, uh, and it just it, I wasn't making progress. Uh, and um, so I, during the uh, lockdown, I signed up for uh, another course uh, with the um, firm of uh, literary agents who ran sort of creative 
uh, writing courses, Curtis Brown. And uh, it was an online course, lasted uh, five days. And you had to submit 3,000 words, which fortunately I had, um, uh, to be selected for the course. Uh, and basically, you know, <clears throat> of all the submissions, they would select the best 15 of 15 places. And 15 places because basically um, uh, the course ran for five days and each day we um, appraised or, or three of, uh, of the students' work on the course. Um, and uh, anyway, I was selected. I think they had something like 60 people submit 3,000 words. I was one of 15 selected. So that was encouraging. Um, most of the people on this course uh, were the, all, the, well, the 12 of the 15 were women. Um, uh, they Their stories were, you know, very different to mine. Um, and I didn't think they would particularly enjoy, you know, a story of military um, daring do's and so on. Um, but um, I, uh, when it came to my turn to, you know, be debriefed, as it were, by the rest of the course and so on, uh, I was absolutely staggered by the enthusiastic response that I had. I was expecting anything but, you know, indifference and so on. And these women were saying, you know, God, Phil, you've opened a, 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 a window uh, or opened a door into a world that, you know, we knew nothing about and never expected to be interested in. But it's it's fantastic. And a couple even said, you know, make a film, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, offered Tom Cruise. <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, I mean, that was really encouraging because I thought, you know, actually, there's a, there's a story here which is more than just of interest to military readers and you know, students of military history. And I very much tried to write a book which you know, kind of explored the the humanity uh, behind these experiences, uh, which I'm sure, again, you know, uh, with your experience, you, you relate to, you know, it's about people. And, um, you know, I wanted to try and get across a story about people, in my view, some very exceptional people. Um, uh, but also to get across that, you know, that the, these situations, well, they are human situations. Uh, and like any human situation, they're full of humor, laughter, grief, absurdity, chaos, you know, um, that's human life. Uh, and so I really tried to produce a book which conveyed that as well. Uh, and, you know, the readers will have to make up their mind whether I succeeded. The other it was a really good course run by a woman who'd written her own memoir uh, about the death of her brother. Um, and um, she, Yorkshire, so sort of fairly direct. Um, and I was sort of sharing my my challenges with her in terms of, you know, how to write it and so on. And she said, listen, Phil, no author ever wrote and got published sitting, waiting for inspiration. You've just got to start writing, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this as well. Um, and um, and then the other prices, and you know, as you write, you know, the solutions will emerge, the ideas will emerge, and so on. Um, 
Uh, and the other uh, priceless bit of advice was, you know, sort of, well, you know, how do I deal with that? How do I, you know, write it, just tell it as it was. Don't try to explain. Don't, you know, kind of lard it with your opinions and judgments and so on. Just tell what happened and let the reader do the work. They, a good reader will, you know, draw their own conclusions. With a bit of luck, they'll be the right conclusions. So write it that way. And I thought that was so helpful. Uh, so, you know, it ended up eventually, you know, it taken me um, almost 10 years to write 3,000 words. And I wrote the next uh, 70,000 in uh, six months, partly because, you know, I had a deadline. You know, the 40th uh, anniversary of the war was coming up. Uh, I found a publisher who said, ah, yes, but, uh, you know, you've only sent me 30,000 words so far and we'll need 70,000 by October if we're going to hit the uh, 40th anniversary. So that was, you know, that's how the book came to life. <laughs> Amazing. Now, did you have a, a sense of catharsis when you got the story from your mind onto paper? Um, not really. Um but um, no, no, I wouldn't say there was a catharsis, you know, because I don't think I'd been plagued with problems, you know, as a result of the war or anything like that. Uh, I was angry about some things that had happened, and the, the, you know, both during and and uh, on our return, um, some of which you know affected me directly and so on. But but um, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't traumatized, I don't think. Um, but it was an interesting experience. Uh, and I think the most interesting was what I've already referred to was, um, you know, my wife um, acting as my first line editor. <clears throat> and, you know, I said, look, kind of, you know, say what you like about it. If it works, great. If it, something doesn't work or sounds wrong, tell me. Um, and she was, you know, really uh, fantastic in that. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, you know, took most of her advice, but it was when she said, you know, but, you know, why, why didn't we talk about this at the time? That really took it, 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 it actually hit me quite hard. Uh, and I thought, you know, why the hell didn't we? And so in a sense, writing the book sort of, um, healed a harm I'd done, if you like, uh, by not talking about it and, um, so that's quite interesting. Beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you always think about the individual pouring their soul onto the pages. But yeah, I mean, opening that window to parents, spouses, children, whatever it is, that's another entire line of, of communication that, you know, I mean, I think this is one of the most misunderstanding things, misunderstood things, is that most people want to help. You know, we we keep it to ourselves, especially if we're in uniform, we're the protectors, we're the, the problem solvers. But just you know when you ask for help it's amazing how many people line up and it doesn't have to be a deliberate i'm struggling but like you said some things that you locked away that maybe you're ashamed of maybe you don't want to burden your family with they they want to hear that maybe they don't want to hear the macabre you know grotesque details but you know what did my my husband my wife my child my father do for this country mm. Mm. yeah and i mean i had you know some simmering anger about uh you know events after uh you know after our return you know i think within two power itself you know a number of things were not well handled and and so on uh 
and I was angry about that. And um, you know, I to be honest, because of that anger, you know, um, I didn't behave particularly well as a husband. You know, as a you know, went off and you know got pissed with my company sergeant major in the sergeant's mess and so on, rather than going home. You know, because we could talk to each other about our experiences as much as anything else. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, um, it kind of made me think about that. You know, yeah, it was that it was productive. That was it was definitely productive in that sense. Now, we obviously experienced quite a lot of peacetime again, the UK at least, um, you know, after the Falklands War until obviously Desert Storm and then moving forward to, you know, high up tempo again. What was what, what was it like as far as going from such a, an acute event as, as you've just described to, you know, back to, you know, praying and, and, and maintaining peace for, for a long time before the Middle East kicked off? Yeah, um... I think I, I found it really probably quite difficult. Um, uh, but I think um, also, you know, uh, if you like, it, it, it also helped to focus me because, you know, I think until the Falklands, I think probably my my uh, climbing was probably more important than my military career. Uh, and um, I think my experience in the Falklands, and, you know, I think I did reasonably well. Um, uh, and led my company reasonably effectively. Um, that it, that suddenly, you know, actually, there's something here I want to get my teeth into, and you know, come through this and continue to deliver and deliver effectively. Whereas, you know, without that, I don't know, I might have not stayed in that much longer, and and you know, just focused on my climbing. Um, but I'm very glad I had that experience and that I, you know, um, um, continued to develop this, in a sense uh, as a soldier. Um, so, uh, yeah, interesting, interesting. Still more to think about. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that seems to be a very positive tool from a transition from a military career, a first responder career, onwards is continuing service um, and I know that you've managed to kind of marry you know the non-profit side with your passion for climbing so talk to me about the Ulysses Trust yeah um, yeah I think that's an interesting point actually um, uh, I um, started the Ulysses Trust um, in uh, uh, 1992 uh, I was commanding a, a, a reserve battalion a reserve parachute battalion in london and uh, the um reserve army sort of took the view that it'd be nice to launch a, uh, an expedition to try everest and um i arrived and was because of my climbing background and so on was asked to um look at these plans and see if they had any future in them and my initial take was you know actually no there's not much future. <laughs> There's an awful lot of ground to cover, let alone, you know, getting hold of the money uh, that it would take, uh, but building a team which is capable and so on. Um, but eventually, over time, as, you know, more and more people got to hear the plans and so on, and I worked with a potential team, um, you know, I began to think, actually, it was 
viable, but you know we'd have to, uh, but, but not in the time frame that had initially been envisaged. Uh, so I've been advising this sort of team, if you like, uh, monitoring the progress and so on. And eventually, I said, look, you you're going to have to slip this uh, at least a year because you haven't got the funds, and also I don't think you're going to get a permit to climb the mountain until God knows where. Uh, and uh, someone then suggested, well, why don't we try and do it in winter? Because there's not a queue of people waiting to try and climb it in winter. Uh, and there's yet to be a, a first British winter ascent. Um, so uh, I thought, yeah, this is you know interesting. Uh, and then uh, the team uh, came to see me uh, and said, Phil, we've just occurred to us that if we postpone it, as you've advised, um, you know, you will have finished your touring command and might be available to lead the expedition. And I hadn't, this hadn't been part of my calculations at all. I absolutely promise you. But, you know, this was an offer I found very difficult to refuse. Um, the risks of winter really are, are, are dominated by the fact that the jet stream drops over the Himalayas uh, in the winter uh, and uh, comes down to about I uh, still talk in terms of feet, I'm afraid, uh, down to about 24,000 feet, 24,500 feet. Uh, and of course, Everest at 29,000 feet is firmly sticking into the jet stream and, and winds in excess of 180 miles an hour, where you clearly can't do anything. Um, so uh, we set about this thinking, right, well, what we need is, you know, it's been done three times before. Uh, uh, the, the, the sort of track record was perhaps not encouraging. The, the three teams who've done it before were Korean, uh, Japanese, and Polish. Um, Poles particularly strong reputation of winter Himalayan climbing. Um, most people sort of gave winter a wide berth. Um, and uh, so there we were putting our hands up for it. Uh, and we tried to, the initial plan was to get commercial sponsorship. Um, and um, um, we got sort of three potential commercial sponsors and talking to them. And one by one, as they got more acquainted with the real risks of attempting Everest in winter, they also backed away and said, this, sorry, doesn't make commercial sense. But some of the people we talked to did say, however, you know, we would be prepared to make a, you know, we like the idea that we'd be prepared to make a non-attributable, uh, non-sponsored, um, uh, charitable, contribution to the expedition uh if there was an ex a charity we could donate to so uh, there wasn't <laughs> so we thought we better form a charity and that was the start of the UDC's trust uh the name really is based on um uh, the mythological Ulysses um uh, and particularly with uh, Tennyson's wonderful poem Ulysses uh in mind um which, if you haven't read it, please read it. It'll explain an awful lot. <laughs> um, it's uh, so we kicked that off initially, as I say, with the prime focus of, of funding this expedition, um, but always with the sort of long term uh, hope, if you like, uh, that uh, we could keep it going and support other reserve forces uh, expeditions. Um, so uh like many things you know the, once we were fully funded i mean i had an amazing meeting 
uh, with a, a merchant banker uh, who'd um, been in the um, reserve forces uh, SAS regiment. And um, uh, he said, I'll find your funds, you know, but uh, I'd heard this countless times already and, you know, most people dropped away. And he rang me one Sunday morning. We were £100,000 in debt. Uh, all our equipment was being delivered and we were trying our clothing on Sunday morning. And he rang me and said, can you meet me for lunch? I said, well, as it happens, I'm in London. Yes, I can. And um, he uh, fished out of his pocket a cheque for, I think it was £200,000 on the back of his, and his, his colleagues' bonuses for a deal that he just got off the ground a big um, uh, public offering. And um, he said, cash it express, he said, because uh, the bank don't know I'm doing this yet. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, uh, the, the the start, if you like. And of course, uh, once other people knew we were funded, you know, all the sort of fences then got off and said, oh, we'd like a bit of this as well. Uh, so we actually ended up with, you know, quite a healthy surplus of funds, which enabled us to keep the charity going and sponsoring other reserve force expeditions for a couple of years. And then since then, it's been continuing exercise of raising funds to support other expeditions. And it was about <clears throat> a year after we got back that actually we we're getting a lot of inquiries from um, uh, young cadet uh, uh, organisations, you know, the Air Training Corps and the uh, Army Cadet Force and so on. Um, and so we took a view and thought, well, actually, you know, we should really expand its remit to support cadets as well. Uh, and I mean, in fact, now the main thrust of all our work is, is supporting young cadets um, and well over half of what we now grant funds for expeditions is all, all well over half is now for cadet expeditions. And it's, you know, very much. Uh, with a focus to enable young cadets, um, whatever their backgrounds, and some of them, you know, pretty uh, uh, disadvantaged uh, situations, uh, to be able to take part in these uh, expeditions. And any site, any type, really. So we've, um, you know, provided financial support for uh, people crossing the uh, Antarctic, um, uh, going to Everest. But equally, um, you know, for um, cadets making their first foray into the um, hills of North Wales, you know, it is very much, you know, is there a need? Is it is it delivering social value? Um, uh, and yes, if it is, we'll support it. So, you know, if clearly the participants understand the nature of the opportunity they're taking part in, uh, deriving benefit and social uh, and other development value from that, then, you know, um, yeah, very much I feel um, I, I, I was only, I mean, I was not a trustee at the time of the Everest expedition because I was a beneficiary. Um, I then became a trustee um, after we got back, um, but uh, not closely involved. We had a volunteer who ran it for us and who actually ran our sort of rear party during the expedition. Um, he moved on and died some years ago. I retired from uh, work. I'd sort of gone into business when I left the army. Uh, I had retired and uh, looked in and I could see without this chap, it was losing its way. So I 
got heavily reinvolved with it and and sort of um uh, you know got it to where it is now um and you know as you say it's uh, you know um it's a way of uh, giving back i i very much see it as i got reinvolved because you know it was losing its way and needed revitalizing because <laughs> i saw it as my baby if you like uh and um um you know very much picking up what you said there is something there that you know when you've you know been in the sort of careers that uh, you and i have been in you know this i guess a um uh, a yearning or a need to you know keep putting something back so that's been my retirement really fairly busy one <laughs> but we are there now and i think uh, my concern was always um you know so it happens so often with small charities the founders turn their toes up and you know soon after the charity dies with them um and i think we're now in a position where we're here to stay we've got a very small permanent start feeling i can step away uh and um if i can do that i shall be a happy man yeah i mean and i mean i think we do make a difference i mean certainly you know um we support probably in the region of um, 130 expeditions a year some big some small um and um you know something like 1500 individuals you know well over a thousand cadets uh, benefiting from these experiences which um you know an awful many an awful lot of them you know particularly the cadets you know would never get the chance to you know have these sort of experiences and opportunities uh, and it undoubtedly i mean it, it, you know we've heard some we've had some great feedback you know on individuals um you know my 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 daughter my child went away uh still a child uh has come back completely different and you know great stories one of the conversations that come up over and over again, you talk especially if, if, if a child grows up in an environment that maybe isn't nurturing and isn't lifting them up, the importance of mentorship, whether it's an army cadet program that you yourself went through, whether it's the uh, firefighter mentorship program that one of my friends stood up here where I live now, there's a lot of kind of eye rolling and, you know, kids today conversations is Gen Z, but the solution is is mentorship you know trying to be a good parent in your own home but then also walking outside your front door and say how can i take my skill set my life's journey and apply it to someone in my community to elevate them rather than watch them spiral downward yeah 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 and i mean and undoubtedly i mean yes we there's some uh, cadets uh, taking part in these expeditions who you know uh, from good backgrounds um no hardships and so on um um and we sometimes get asked you know well do you need to support these and you know why don't you just only fund you know the disadvantage um you know my answer is um when we fund the expeditions and the expeditions comprise some who are well off well to do etc and well looked after well nurtured and others who are right at the other end of the spectrum and the value of the expedition is these people are thrown together and each benefits from learning and observing the other and given a, a, a inspiration and aspiration from uh, just that 
exchange. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it's a source of well, a source of pride and satisfaction. Yeah. So for people listening, if they want to help, if they want to donate, they want to contribute, where's the best place to find the Ulysses Trust online? Um, Google us. We have a, a website uh, as well, which is um, uh, uk. And there's buttons on that website which enable you to donate or, you know, if you want to get involved or you, you anyone listening to this, is looking to get in the uk at least get an expedition off the ground and is looking to help then uh, you know that's the uh, the pathway to um to getting there uh and uh um yes and uh, the points of contact all on the on the website so i think keeping it simple go to the website beautiful now the books are available on amazon i'm sure in a lot of, of stores as well what about if people want to reach out to you specifically where are the best places online or social media to do that um i'm uh, i'm on um uh social media so i'm, I'm more on facebook and linkedin than uh, anywhere else so you know search for me there um it's probably the best way um i'm not always very good at sort of following my facebook file and so on but uh, i get there eventually um and uh yeah no i'd be ha very happy to um engage with people about the book uh or or, or the charity yeah uh that'd be good well philip i just want to say thank you so much we've been chatting for over three hours now um it's been an amazing conversation but there's so much from you know and we just we just scraped the surface as well but between you know your journey into the military your your climbing experiences you know obviously the falklands conflict the mental health side there's so much great great conversation today so i want to thank you so much for not only sharing your story and reliving some of the things that you know probably are less desirable for you to be thinking about um but also being so generous with your time and coming on the show today well all i can say is you know thank you very much James, for inviting me and for bearing uh, with my wittering <laughs> which i quite understand if you feel the need to edit some of it <laughs> i hadn't realized the time had flown past uh, and very much enjoyed talking to you uh, and uh, you know really yeah very good i wish you every success with the uh, with the podcast and uh, and with your future writing as well <laughs> <laughs>